All right, welcome to episode number 22, uh, Review the News. Uh, we have a very uh, special guest with us today uh, at uh, D. Pinson. Dave Pinson has agreed to join us today and uh, weigh in on some of the topics of the show. Um, and our, uh, our fellow co-host, Neil, will be coming in. He's running a little late, but that's all right. So we'll bring him in um, appropriately. I'm sure he's got some COVID updates. Neil's our COVID guy, so he always likes to do the COVID stuff. Um, and uh, that being said, I think uh, the first and foremost, we have to tip our hat to uh, the man who basically created all this from the radio, and now it's translated into the podcasting, which is uh, the passing of Rush Limbaugh, who was an absolute giant in the industry. Um, and I think, uh, just, you know, when you look back at, at rush and all of his, uh, the years that he was involved with radio, cause he started out, you know, just like this show, we do a little politics, culture, and sports, uh, rush started off as a sports guy. Um, I, I think there was rumors for a time. We all know that ESPN debacle with, uh, when he, when, when he talked about Donovan McNabb and of course he wasn't wrong cause because uh, Tom, uh, what was his name, Todd? Tom, uh, uh, the linebacker from Denver. Tom Jackson. Tom Jackson, yeah. Yeah, Tom Jackson, because Tom Jackson agreed with his point or, or countered his point, didn't even call it into question um, at the time. Dave, you do you remember what I'm talking about? When, when Rush Limbaugh and Tom Jackson, they were talking about, uh, I guess uh, Rush Limbaugh was saying that that the only reason why people were paying as close to Donovan attention to Donovan McNabb was because he was a black quarterback or they, they had like different expectations of him because he was a black quarterback. And then it was like two weeks later, they turned it into a racist thing. I do remember Rush's short lived ESPN gig. And I remember the controversy. I don't remember specifically his conversation with Todd Jackson. Yeah. Cause I remember watching the panel and they were talking about, you know, quarterbacks and, of course, the, the black quarterback, which is kind of funny because you would think it's ancient history now with so many black quarterbacks in the NFL. But I guess Rush had made the point that there was specific interest in Donovan McNabb. And I'm sure you can go back and YouTube it and, and follow all that. But he was actually rumored at one point um, he was going to be a part owner of the St. Louis Rams. Um, when they were in St. Louis and then he actually had to come. There was so much consternation about him possibly being an NFL owner. He, they had to, uh, he had to come out. I remember listening to a show and he had officially uh, deny. And then he had to explain the whole process. I guess he was in some talks to take some, to do something with them. And then he just kind of walked away from the whole thing. Once it started creating a lot of controversy. So yeah, if memory serves, I think he was forced out and it's unfortunate because he was a huge NFL fan. He would have been a good owner. And, and of course, he, he was never a racist. I mean, Bo Snurdly, his uh, sidekick for years, is black. He, he had warm relationships with a number of NFL, black NFL veterans. I forget the guy's name, but one used to come on his show on Fridays occasionally, and they would talk about the, the, usually the playoff games that were coming up. Uh, but what he said was true, that the NFL had an interest in seeing black quarterbacks and black coaches do well. And I forget the name of the coach, but there's that one black coach that had a mediocre track record. And he was there for it, his team for like 20 years. You got the sense that he got a longer, he got a longer run than he would have had he not been black for that reason. Todd, do you know who, who, 
Dave's referring to. I don't remember off the top. The only because the only guys I kind of remember that were early on, and I'm I'm revealing my age here. I mean, I remember Tony Dungy, um, and who? Uh, I mean, who else? Uh, well, I mean, Tomlin. Tomlin was after Cower, um, and then I'm just trying to think. Not to take this into uh, a dedicated sports um, piece, more more talking about uh, Rush, but but yeah, I, I mean again, and then they they have the Rooney Rule now, and they and then they also have the um, uh, um, not just the Rooney Rule. Uh, they've brought the Rooney Rule over to England, so in England they have to use the Rooney Rule to hire when they're looking to hire, I think, Premier League managers or at least. Uh, just checking my Twitter, it was Marvin Lewis. And, oh, Marvin. and yeah, this is a tweet I had back in this June. He was, let's see, he, he was a coach, head coach for 16 seasons. And his playoff record during that time frame was 0-7. And I think his last three years, he had losing records. And, and the question I was asking there was, would a white head coach with a similar track record have lasted as long? I mean, I, I think that's a fair question. And probably the answer is no, right? I think that's the, re the real answer. And then I remember the problem with Marvin Lewis was he had a bunch of those Bengal teams and they would self-implode. I remember Vontez Burfecht like going out and just decking somebody in the middle, it was, it was uh, a Steeler game. It was to either against the Steelers or Cleveland to get into the playoffs, and they were winning, and then all of a sudden they had all the personal foul, uh, penalties. And I, I think that happened to Marvin Lewis on, a, I want to say, a couple occasions. And, um, you know, the, his, I guess the critique on him was that he, he didn't have control of his teams or maybe he was too close to the players. Um, and that's and I mean, that, I don't know if that's necessarily because he was black, because uh, I don't know if Tomlin really had the same issue. I mean, Tomlin had gotten rid of his quote unquote trouble players like uh, A.B. And um, there were some other um, I don't really know the Steelers well enough, but I know that Tomlin ha had been able to ha had didn't have similar issues. So I don't know if that was just but that's a great point. I mean, 16 years and an 0-7 playoff record. Um there's only a couple organizations that jump out at me that give coaches a long time to actually matriculate, and that's the Steelers and the Giants. But even the Giants now in the last couple of years have gotten on the, the coaching carousel. Which yeah, is... I'm a Giants fan. I'm, I'm certainly aware of that. And I think it's actually they, they probably got rid of Coughlin too soon, particularly because they got rid of him and then they didn't get rid of the GM till later. And then they, they ended up, the next GM wasn't that great either. Uh, the guy that's currently there. But just to give you guys a broader context to why I brought that up on Twitter, maybe it's of interest to you. This was last summer. Uh, that was a thread from June. And what happened was after the George Floyd situation, Bloomberg TV, I used to watch this show called What Did You Miss? It's still on. It's like their market wrap-up show. And I guess to be relevant, they would bring in like a black um, C-level executive of some Fortune 500 company for example, they had chief marketing officer of UPS or some black executive or black entrepreneur, and they were talking about George Floyd and systemic racism. And then the, the end result of the conversation was always this black guest saying, 
we need to promote more black executives or we need to fund more black entrepreneurs, all these things that have absolutely zero relevance with what happened to George Floyd or why it happened. And, and I made the point that they're, they're kind of being misleading about, I mean, there's already been plenty of black CEOs, uh, executives in corporate America, black NFL coaches, et cetera. And, like, and people just, it just gets memory hold. Like for example, there was a guy named Don Thompson who was the CEO of McDonald's for three years. And at the time he was the highest paid executive in America. And I recall it might've even been during that time, Bill Maher had a line on his coat uh, on his show, something about uh, contrasting like the pay of, a, of like a black McDonald's worker with the CEO. I don't think he even knew that the CEO of McDonald's was black at that point. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Todd, last episode, Todd brought up the, uh, I don't know if you've caught, if you watched this, Dave, um, the Larry Elder uh, documentary, Uncle Tom, uh, which I watched and I watched with my wife. And my wife, <clears throat> who unfortunately in the last four years, everyone who is apolitical is now political. And my wife was one of those people for a very long time who was apolitical, whose only interest was on just seeing people get together. So she was more of a, someone who would be interested in just local, you know, everyone get along together, just hang out. Um, and, uh, but my wife now has obviously been, um, you know, because of the last four years has, has, has had to now draw lines and, and pick political things, which I don't think she's she's enjoyed. Um, but I watched it with my wife and, uh, you know, there was a couple of times where she she was tearing up. I mean, because you just see the way a lot of the black conservatives uh, are treated now you could make the you know argument that you know a lot of them have made this into a business themselves and, and things of that nature and i guess you know you you, you always run the risk of being i guess accused of be, uh, being a grifter or whatever but i i didn't get that feeling from it i know and i know larry elder has a show and he has his he has his things and he sells his stuff and and i get it and that's kind of part of the business as well but the the why i'm bringing this up is the uh herman cain was on it and Herman Cain made some great points because he was a, he was an executive at Pillsbury. Uh, Pillsbury owned Godfather's Pizza, and he tells the story of how he went about getting the the position uh, to be to run Godfather's Pizza. And he basically went into the interview, and he said it was like him and another white guy. And they turned around, they gave the white guy the job. So Herman Cain goes, "Hey, what gives?" You gave you gave the white guy the job. They're like, listen, Herman, he's got a master's degree. So Herman's like, OK, so he went out and got a master's degree. Next time something came up, he said they had nowhere to go, but they had to pick they had to pick me because I was doing the job and I got the degree that they wanted me to have. And they gave him to it. And then after that, he wound up, I think, taking over uh, as CEO of Godfather Pizza. And he had a great run with that. And to hear him tell that story, I mean, to me. That's been my experience. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I am someone who uh, you would say lives in a bubble or something. But that's been my experience in my life when I've when I've been, um, you know, in diverse atmospheres. It usually goes to the better uh, performing people. But now we've kind of um, dilute, diluted that stuff. And I and I want to take it back one more. And I, I know we started off um, giving a tribute to Rush. It's kind of interesting how we got here. But um 
But can I just make a comment about Herman Cain, or do you want to move on from this? No, sure, no, go ahead. I was just going to tie it in, but go ahead. Oh no! Once you finish, and then I'll do it. Go ahead. Okay. Um. So, no. So my point was, is this all ties in? And uh, this year, when I had to sit and watch Michael Smith and some other journalist guy, Michael S. Smith or whatever, you know, they go by the middle initial, and they're talking about how Eric Bieniemy is not getting a job because he's black, and I'm like. How is that even? I'm. Um, this is 2021. We want to win foot. People want to win football games. Like I can't. I can't imagine. You know, maybe that was in the 70s or 80s where you would say, "Hey, there's enough candidates," or there's a small pool where you want to. But if Eric Bieniemy in 2021 was going to get you to the Super Bowl, you're going to tell me you're not going to that these owners. These owners are more invested in hiring Eric Bieniemy and Eric Bieniemy going 0 16 every year. No, um, it, if anything, the pendulum has swung far to the other side where the, the black candidate would get the preference, all else equal. But most to say about Herman Cain was there was a lot of condescension toward him from kind of liberal cosmopolitan types and also from, I'm thinking too, you guys familiar with the, the blogger, he used to call himself Half Sigma, and now he calls himself Line of the Blogosphere? No, I'm not. Okay, he's kind of an HBD blogger, but he had some condescending stuff to say about Herman Cain too. But but he hit on a like a basically an element of truth. I mean, Herman Cain was literally a rocket scientist in the U.S. Navy and a mathematician, and then he went on to become had a successful business career. But you know, he sounds like a Southern black guy. He's not like an Obama black guy who can sound like a white guy. And then he could turn on his fake kind of preacher cadence. Right. Herman Cain is what you see is what you get. He was the real, he sounded like a real Southern black guy, smart guy, but that's how he sounded. And people don't like to admit it. I think on the left, but they are prejudiced against that. And frankly, maybe eight, eight or nine times out of 10, that prejudice is going to work out for you where someone sounds like that. They're not going to be a super bright person. But Herman Cain was a really bright guy who happened to just sound like that. And they were utterly dismissive of him. I remember when Trump was going to nominate him to a Federal Reserve Board and they're like, oh, Herman Cain, the pizza guy. And they were they just pretty much insulted him, even though I think he had had some job with a Federal Reserve Bank in addition to his other business experience. So I just thought that was I don't know if it's racism or if it's more of a class or a, or a regional kind of prejudice, because well, obviously these people all loved Obama. Yeah, it, you know, and it's interesting you said that, right? Because what was Harry Reid and Joe? It was either Harry Reid or Joe Biden, and when they were describing uh, Barack Obama, they were like, "He's clean," and he speaks. It was Joe Biden. It was, was Joe Biden. He said, Joe, "This is the first black candidate." I think he was talking. He was contrasting with people like. Uh, say Al Sharpton, like other blacks had run for president before, but he was like, this is the first black president, I think his exact, or candidate, his exact words were, who was clean, articulate, and nice. Yeah, clean, articulate, and nice. And it's interesting that you say that, Dave, because I want to tie this in back to, to Larry Elder's documentary again. They do a segment on Ben Carson, and they've got, and I didn't realize this because I don't watch that, I don't watch this crap anymore, but they've got Trevor Noah, and they've got um, 
a couple of the other late night guys, and they're making fun of the way Ben Carson speaks. They're, the the parodies on SNL, and that's so interesting that they, I mean, I, I it's it's, I'm just like I'm just in awe in in this moment here because that's something that I've never even really thought about before is how the language and how the speech is such a factor because they used to go Ben Ben Carson did surgery on a conjoined twin and separated their brains for crying out loud. And they, they were ridiculing because he has that real soft manner of speech. And, and yeah, that's a great point, Dave, how they, how they attack the language. And especially because though, because Herman Cain um, and, um, and Carson, I think it was a little different with Carson, but there's a general, you're right that they went after him because he was a Republican, but with Ben Carson, he, I think there were aspects of Ben Carson that the media downplayed when he was considered apolitical and he was being promoted as a, uh, as a role model for, for, for black Americans. Obviously they, they focused on, his excellence being the top pediatric neurosurgeon in the country, I think it was, and, and the separating the conjoined twins and that kind of thing. But there was always other aspects to Ben Carson, like there, and I think they were aware of this, but they just didn't really talk about it. For example, after he became, what was it? Uh, the department that he was secretary of was HUD, right? HUD. Yeah. Yeah. After, Trump had nominated him. I think it was the New York Times did a piece about Ben Carson's house. And he had this picture. There was like a portrait of Ben Carson and there was a black Jesus with his hands on his shoulders. So he kind of had religious cultural sensibilities that are not uncommon in the black community, but to like a liberal white person would come across as kind of cringe. And that sort of thing was suppressed when they wanted to elevate him as, as a role model. You know, they made that, that movie about him, I think for HBO, where Cuba Gooding Jr. played him. Right. But once he became a Republican presidential candidate and then a Republican cabinet official, then let's just mock him for like the, the, the kind of African-American cultural religious stuff that we just ignore when it comes to, you know, we, we ignored it when it came to him before. Yeah, that's a, uh, go ahead. Talk. I wanted to jump in there. Uh, two things. Yeah, I live, I watched that um, uh, Uncle Tom uh, special um, as well. And quite frankly, what happens with the liberal media, they um, mock anyone that dares uh, try to be an entrepreneur that's uh, non-white. They uh, denigrate anyone. It's, even after uh, you die. Quite frankly, we can turn uh, tie this back into Rush. When Herman Kay got, came, uh, got uh, COVID-19 and passed away, people were mocking him because they were like, he must have gotten it from a, a Trump rally somewhere. And then same thing happened with uh, Rush. Uh, the, the reaction to his death this week, uh, you know, was outlandish, you know. Uh, I would never try to mock somebody that died to that extent. And it was really uh, appalling. 
and by the way, we've been joined by Neil. Hey, Neil, do you want to jump in here? I've, it's great that the, the, how brilliant the media is to, to knock one of the uh, world's leading neurosurgeons. Neuro, um, who the fuck are they to talk shit about him? Here's what I said. You're uh, a political reporter, you're failed. You failed yeah. already. Your mother is not proud of you if you're a political reporter. But, but things are a little more nuanced. Like what I wrote, I'm just checking in 2019. Ben Carson was a gifted pediatric neurosurgeon and was lavishly lauded for it across the political spectrum as a black role model. But he was never an intellectual. Surgery is more of a craft. Ben Carson's biopic was aptly titled Gifted Hands. It was Gifted Hands, the Ben Carson story. And culturally, Carson is not Obama. So when he ran for president as a Republican and then joined Trump's cabinet, the left started highlighting the hokey aspects of Carson they ignored before. And then the image, I just shared this with you guys on Twitter, was uh, there's Ben Carson in the lab coat with a black Jesus with his hand over his shoulder. So, I mean, this is, there's, there's white versions of this kind of thing too. I remember I had a buddy growing up and he had a picture in his house where there was like a, a white kid at the plate and he's getting ready to hit baseball and there's Jesus behind him kind of coaching him. So, um, but that's something that the, the, the point isn't what, what Carson believes or doesn't believe. It's just what gets emphasized and what doesn't get emphasized. Right. I just think he's obviously clearly uh, exceptionally intelligent person and these lesser intelligent people, you know, get to write whatever the fuck they want about him. I don't know. He's intelligent. I'm sure he's intelligent, but even by his own admission, he had difficulty in school with the academic stuff. And then we, that, then we could talk about, you know, what's wrong with, you know, the education system. Some guy like that could be a leading neurosurgeon, right? It's that. That's a good question. I mean, it's a good point. I think, and that comes up in other fields too. Like, for example, in 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 finance, there, there's a test that stockbrokers need to take, need to take called the, they usually call it the Series 7. It's a general securities exam. And it's really hard. And I remember working at a place where a guy couldn't pass it and there was some obscure test that let him pass instead. But one, do you need to be that smart to talk to people about stocks? No. But it kind of weeds point. out some crooks point. that would get in there. You know what I mean? It, it just... By putting the barrier there, it weeds out some crooks that probably are dumb and would just prey on dumb people. So it doesn't weed out all the crooks, obviously. Of course not. But, yeah. but I think maybe yeah, it's, yeah, you just get a smarter crook. You're absolutely you get right. a smarter right. crook. That's true. That's one downside. When you talk, when you talk about Dr. Carson, like watching him, watching him, you know, he, he, it's very few people can do what he what he has done. You sure, know? That's, that's absolutely not, true. That's not, you know. You talk about Obama. Obama is you know what he what he has accomplished, had has will accomplish is crazy. But fucking this dude's ripping people's brains open and like making them better. Like that's that's incredible. I would say very few people can do what Obama did, but a lot of that was him being the first. It doesn't work as right. well the, yeah. the second time. Like that. Well, that's what you saw in the last election cycle. I mean, Kamala is. The VP now, but she kind of flamed out in the primary. So did um, she was the first. She was Gary one of the first that. to Gary flame out. That. Right, I think she was the first to flame out. And then also uh, the senator from from my state, from New Jersey, Cory Booker. He didn't win anything. He kind of flamed out too. And the the interesting thing about him is he was originally 
kind of a big favorite of people on Wall Street and Silicon Valley because they, they, they kind of thought of him as the first black president kind of guy. And he might have, in a different timeline, that might have worked for him if he were a little faster. What was One thing Obama had going for him was he was kind of audacious. I mean, who ever heard of a first-term senator running for president like that? Someone well, with, like, no experience. Well, he, I think, well, I, my, my answer to that is the, the Obama perspective is that he was a manufactured product of all the Democrats that weren't getting any pie under the Clinton administration when the Clintons had taken over the Democratic Party. He was there. I think, I think there were people um, that, that coalesced around the idea of how do we break the uh, Clinton um, grip on the Democratic Party. I think people weren't getting... Uh, paid per se and the idea was well the clinton's next move is they're going to run a woman and she'd be the first right meaning hillary and the only counter to that would be to run you know the first black man although i think in and if you're hillary clinton and you're looking at 2020 you probably cannot believe that joe biden is the president and you never even you never even got close so i i mean when i see the because i know um if I remember correctly, in the early goings of the Obama administration, he he had to, in order to make peace with the rest of the Democratic Party, he had to bring a lot of Clinton people in to his administration and then eventually had to put the cherry on top by bringing in Hillary, who was a complete disaster as secretary of state. In, in, and it was one of those keep your enemies close um, moves because – the the Clintons had done a great job. I think, um, if I remember correctly, they had assumed a lot of the Democratic National Party's debt and had actually paid a lot of it off with, I think, some of Bill's, um, I don't know if they use like campaign contributions or how they went and did that, but that's how they wound up with uh, the, um, who was that? She had that whiny voice. Uh, she sounded like Fran Dreischer. She was the congresswoman from Florida. She was running the party for a while. She was a big Dresher, big, Fran Dresher. Yeah, Fran Dresher. But no, the I can't remember her name. She's the congresswoman down in Florida, and she had to quit when they found out she was rigging it in 2016 for uh, against Bernie. And uh, and so I think, yeah, when you look at Obama, Dave, I think you're right in the sense. Debbie Wasserman he, Schultz. I think you're talking about. Yes, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Correct. And uh, I think when you, I think you bring up some good points. He was the first and a trailblazer, but he was a completely packaged guy and when and i always bring this up in 2008 when you go back and look at what he was running on um he was a conservative democrat there's no way he would have won if he especially in 2008 because we know running on the craziness of the democratic party now is a, is a loser that's why they had to bring joe um joe biden out of the morgue to dress up this old establishment, you know, it's not going to be, and obviously his, his, his 56 executive orders have shown otherwise. But, um, but I think that when you look at o Obama in, in the 08, I mean, he was against gay marriage. He was, uh, you know, he, he talked about ending uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which, which he didn't. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think, you know, Again, to your point, he was a right place, right time. Uh, people were everybody who went and voted for him because they talk about him again in that Larry Elder documentary, 
right? Everybody went and voted for him. So, I mean, most people voted for him because he was black, and they thought that this would be the culminating moment where we could just bury all the racial stuff, and instead it the switch got flipped, and it went into hyperdrive. Yeah, well, part of that was naivete from not remembering earlier examples of blacks being elected for similar reasons. And I mean, I saw this immediately at the time because the, the parallel to me was David Dinkins getting elected mayor of New York in the late 80s because David Dinkins was kind of an Obama, I think he just passed away last year, but he was sort of yes. an Obama type where he was very articulate and he, he didn't come, he didn't speak in an African-American dialect and he was very professional. And Howard Stern put it pretty uh, bluntly, basically, I think his, his, his su- summation of the whole David Dinkins thing was, oh, excuse me, was people elected David Dinkins because they thought it would change the behavior of average blacks, that they would act more like David Dinkins if you elected David Dinkins mayor. And that didn't happen. And his one big accomplishment, according to Howard Stern, was to stop the airplanes flying over uh, the stadium during the U.S. Open because he was a big tennis fan. So it's a really stupid idea, but I think a lot of white people voted for Obama because they thought he would have influence, he would be a role model, and he would change the way young African-Americans acted, particularly the men. And that didn't happen, and it was never going to happen. So... He, I mean, he could have made some progress in sort of tamping down the racial conflict in this country. But as you say, he went in a completely opposite direction. Yeah, and I, won- I wonder what that, what that reasoning was. Um, because... Uh... Gary, I'm loving this, this uh, image I have here. What's that? Oh, Thank you. sorry. I, better. I the, That's better. That's better. No. I'm wondering, I'm wondering why that was, because that would have been far more transformative than the dumpster fire we have now. He really, even he could have had just, if he had just take, picked up the mantle with that and soothed over racial relations and really kind of had been that, that transformative character that everyone was looking for, he could have had millions of terrible policies and done terrible, terrible things. I mean, he could have jacked the tax rate to 110%. He could have done all that stuff. And is there and, such a thing as tamping down or soothing over racial relations, though? I, don't, I mean, I don't know. You guys uh, know who Jason Whitlock is? Yes. I love oh, him. He, He's great. Yeah, you guys are sports yeah. guys. He, did you guys see the column he had? I don't read all his columns, but he had one a few months ago, and he pointed out that a lot of the most divisive, commonly thought of black figures in, in America are actually biracial. Yes. Colin Kaepernick, yes, Barack Obama, that. and all this. And his point was, they, maybe we, he was speaking for black people, shouldn't be so quick to let these biracial people represent us and speak for us because they're bringing a psychological dynamic that has nothing to do with just American race relations in general. And and the dynamic is they're often raised by white people and they feel like they don't fit in that way. And then they're going to, so they try to be extra, I guess they perceive 
being confrontational as a core aspect of being black. So they, they kind of do more of that to fit in with their black side. And maybe Obama wasn't confrontational in the exact same ways. He was a little more subtle, but obviously this is a guy who I think as Steve Saylor has talked about and other people have talked about has lived his life trying to be, be black. I mean, he's half white and he was not raised by blacks. He was raised by his white mother and his, his Indonesian stepfather at some point in Indonesia. He had a pretty exotic background. And, and as Saylor said, you go to, you look at Obama as an undergrad in college, he wasn't culturally black. He was culturally exotic, mixed race, international. He had Pakistani friends. He was kind of an international guy. He's not the guy you would pin down and say, yeah, that's a black guy. He, and he, he could have been a diplomat, someone who kind of had a foot in both worlds, but he went in a different direction. He ended up working, volunteering in black communities in Chicago, marrying an actual African-American wife, and he wrote his biography. It was Dreams of My Father. He was focused on his father's side uh, and that sort of thing. So he, he really embraced and he tried to, and I think while he was president, he filled out the census and under race, he put black. Yeah, it's and I think there's another point, and I always I always refer to this this particular gentleman, but I know he's not the only one that's brought this up. But um, Tariq Nasheed has always um, I don't know if you follow I I follow him on Twitter. I find some of the things he says fascinating. I wind up talking about this guy a lot when it comes to racial relations because I think he he gives a window into um, how, you know how old he do you know how old he is? I'm no. not I'm not sure. Um, but Tariq, Tariq Nasheed also brings up the point about Barack Obama and Kamala Harris and a lot of other black leaders that we see in politics today. That aren't descendants of black slaves. That's, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's that's they, that they have no connection to the actual. So he, I think. And, and in fact, we're, we're descendants of black of owners of black slaves, most likely in the, in the case of Obama and Kamala Harris. Yeah. And I know that was something that they 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 quickly touched on and quickly moved past with Kamala Harris because she, because on the, and then it was the irony of it is most whites who've come here came post. Um, I'd say a lot of whites who came to this country where it were post civil war whites. I know for instance, um, just generation generationally speaking, I have one uh, small Irish um, por- portion of my, ancestry that was here prior to the civil war but everyone else in my family came here in the late 1800s so you know i i find that so you get these people who weren't descendants of slaves demanding something from white people that weren't here during slavery and had no didn't even fight either way and 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 so it's I, I, I think the bigger factor, honestly, than, I mean, slavery, obviously, people focus on that, but segregation versus integration after the 60s, that's probably a bigger component of what's going on today, because prior to integration and prior to civil rights, someone like, oh, geez, a lot of the people we've talked about here, Ben Carson, Ben Carson would be working in a black hospital, and he would be it would, be, it would be a much better hospital than it would be without him. If you look at, I mean, this really kind of struck me. I mentioned Bloomberg and the, the people they were having on. They had on a woman who was the head of 
the largest Black-owned bank in America. And if I didn't know, if they didn't mention this woman was Black, I wouldn't have immediately caught it from looking at her. She was, her skin was white. She had blonde hair. I mean, maybe if you look very closely, you sense that she had some percentage of Black ancestry. And then just for shits and giggles, I looked up the CFO, I think it was a Citigroup or something. And this is a guy, yeah, that's a Black guy. So what it made me think was, after integration, probably, like, it makes sense that the, the CEO of the largest Black-owned bank looks like that, because anyone that's identifiably Black and is talented enough to run a big bank is a C-level executive in a major Fortune 100 company. They're, they've all been hoovered out of that, of that, of the Black community. So prior to integration, you had a lot of these talent, the talented 10th, essentially, was in the Black community building institutions and all this. And then today they're out of it and they're in, they're part of our elite. And when problems happen within the black community, they, they're the ones that, that the media brings in to talk about it. And the solutions they advocate are really stuff that just helps their own kind of click that doesn't really help the black, black community as a whole. Yeah, I mean, that re- it's funny you mentioned that. That reminds me of uh, uh, G.K. Butterfield when he was in charge of the Congressional Black Caucus. I remember him stepping up to the podium, and he's this old white dude with with a mustache and a part in his hair. Named Butterfield. Named Butterfield. And they're like, no, that guy is, is you know, same, same kind of thing. And I was just kind of like, well, yeah, it's I don't know if that's necessarily – a representative but that also kind of brings back the component of the um now i'm going to really go off wild is um like i remember the rwandan genocide and that was the hutus and tutsis and that was based on being a darker african versus a lighter skinned african because i guess i guess the theory was that when the belgians were the colonial masters they rewarded the light-skinned looking uh blacks more than the darker skinned and this was the opportunity even though traditionally between the tutsis and the hutus they there was intermixing between those groups anyway so you had and i don't know who was who but the hutus had light-skinned people as well as dark-skinned people i, and the tutsis. I think the big correct the, the big difference wasn't the skin color although that may have been one but the height because oh, one of them right. was the the nilotics um i think I get them mixed up, but I think that is uh, Rwanda, the current president of Rwanda, who's probably one of the best leaders in Africa right now. He is, which one of those is he? I think he's Tutsi, isn't he? That's the general. Is that Kagame? Yeah, Kagame was the general, and now he's the president. And I think you may be right, but they're nilotics. Like they're the, the, the it, it's, a, it's basically a very different racial group from the Bantus, which most African-Americans are. So they're the ones that are like from more East African, I think kind of Somalia, Kenya, that kind of thing. Although I think Kenya has, has different uh, ethnicities as well. Uh, But anyway, I'm sorry. I I didn't mean to detract from your point. No, 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 no. And that's, that's all I'm just saying is that it, and it's kind of interesting because that is where, I mean, to go to tie this back to the original point, when you talk about the Kaepernick's, and the you know the other um, kind of Whitlock's point with the with the mi- the mixed I guess the mixed, Colin Kaepernick yeah Colin Kaepernick um, the mix the other getting back to Whitlock's point right 
you know, I don't know. I mean that I, I've never had. Oh, that. is a tootsie, by the way. I just oh, looked it up. Yeah, he's a tootsie. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I really thought that was fascinating coming from Whitlock, and then that just kind of spent my, sent my mind spinning and all those things from what I've read and remember, um, about those differences, um, and and how, yeah, I've never had that experience, but you could see that that angst, right, um, from mixed kids probably with white parents or going to schools and the expectation is right. The immediate thing you see is their skin color and you're like, well, you're, you're black. And then, you know, yeah, but you know, also there is the media wants you to say that kind of thing. And it, it's interesting that people give the media what they want, but I'm thinking of a counter example. There's this actress that's on, What's that that show that was based on the the Michael Crichton novel? Westworld. She's on Westworld. And she was also in Mission Impossible too. And I think in recent interviews, she's I'm looking up her name right now. Um in, in recent interviews, she's she's kind of said what you would expect someone who's African American, or she's not even African American. I think she's British. But actually her I think her um her father was was British, and her mother was was African, like from Africa. And she was asked when Mission Impossible Two came out, what it was like growing up black or part black. You know, was it tough? And what she said was, "No." She's like, "I was pretty and exotic, and everybody wanted to be my friend." And she was kind of naive to. to she didn't realize what you're supposed to say. Yeah. But that was probably the truth. Her name is Sandy Newton. That's her name. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And then I think in a more recent interview, yeah, her, her mother was a Zimbabwean. I think she was a nurse or something. And I think her father was volunteering for a medical mission down there. So, yeah, she's like, she comes back. And people, they liked her. She was pretty. She was exotic. She had no problems. And then today, you're, you're, you're kind of supposed to say, if you're black or you're part black, oh, yeah, I dealt with a lot of adversity. Well, I, I think um... – Can I say something about black people? <laughs> so Kathleen sure. was watching the, the Jersey Shore the other day, and they were showing Paulie, Paulie D's new girlfriend that he met on the uh, – whatever they had. A, I guess they had a dating show, and this girl won. And now she's Paulie D's girlfriend. Have you seen this black chick? Uh-uh. She's the fucking hottest thing I ever saw in my life. You, you didn't see this? I'm going to pull up. I'm going to pull up. Like, who the fuck is that? Kathleen's like, oh, that's the girl that won the uh, Paulie D dating show. She's clearly from a modeling agency. She's gorgeous. I'll look it up. As you guys, uh, you guys follow Bronze Age Pervert on Twitter at all or no? I do. Okay, just because I thought of it because you mentioned Rwanda. Have you guys heard him use Interhamway refer to that? Yeah, I saw he tweeted something about that the other day. I can't remember what it was in reference to, but that was he had a fairly Interham a recent Interhamway tweet. Yeah, Interhamway was, I think those, that was the Hutu uh, kind of paramilitary organization, but they used the, the radio to kind of gin up the genocide against the Tutsis. And they, I think their code word was, you know, cut down all the tall trees. And I think his, I think Bronze Age Pervert's idea was that when the media is promoting anti-white kind of stuff, that they're doing something similar. And it's not exactly the same, but I think there's some point to it. I don't know if you guys saw the story 
recently about the uh, the white child that had been adopted by the black mother who happened to yes. be, and I think she was a contestant in some kind of food reality show or something, some cooking, the worst cooks in America or something. Anyway, she, she said the daughter had white privilege and she killed her. So not that someone said kill white people. The media's not saying that, but you're, you're kind of stoking hate and people that are a little bit, you know, maybe they're not entirely, they don't have all the, the restraint or whatever. You, they have a chip on their shoulder to begin with. There's some reason. Maybe it's not too healthy for society to do that. Well, it, you know, uh, it, it, it's, that's a, that's a great, um, it, well, that's an interesting take um, with the, with the inter Hanway. And, and I think, um, yeah, that, I mean, the interesting thing about the guy on the radio who was calling that was actually a white Belgian was the one on the radio delivering the um, the messages. So that, I mean, that I, I thought that was that was completely fascinating because I think if you watch, I don't know if it was Hotel, I don't know if it was the movie with Idris Elba or uh, the guy who was originally in Iron Man, um, uh, Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle was in, yeah, I think he was in Hotel that. Rwanda. And then, right. well, I know there's two, there's two, Rwandan genocide movies, and I don't remember which is which. I want to say it's the Cheetle one, but in the Cheetle one, they actually have the uh, when it goes from scene to scene, it actually is playing the guy on the radio, and um, you know, and and to your point, it's it, it isn't until there's the crescendo of violence that he just comes out and he's like, there, you know, the cockroaches are hiding in this hotel, you know, go to that hotel and you see the interhomway kind of rise up and move into the to the general area and um and again you know that 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 almost and i know we're, we've kind of we kind of gotten uh off into a, a different orbit here but i mean i'm okay uh but you know the rwanda thing kind of reminded me a lot of uh yugoslavia too because the whole thing started with the uh the death of a general they purportedly was shot down by rebels in his airplane but that general was was kind of like a um, uh, a Tito in the sense that he was holding that whole country together, all the different ethnicities and the different groups of people. And when his plane got shot down and he died, and I know T- I think Tito died of natural causes. I don't think he was assassinated, but the same kind of thing happened. Once Tito, once the strongman died, once once the 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 cult of personality died, that was really holding these disparate groups together. Um, through force or bribery or a combination of both, you just see a complete meltdown um, of uh, um, just kind of the this, this society. And it either turns into, you know, racial, ethnic or, or, or economic conflict pretty, pretty quick. And, and then the, o- the other thing that I always wonder about, especially growing up in America as an American, is we've always had this idea even though we never allowed it to happen in our own country is um, this idea of like uh, self-determination, right? It's like, well, if the Serbians want to be in Serbia, let them self-determine. If the Hutus want to be, have their own country, why don't they just self-determine if they live in this geographical area? Why not um, allow them to be self-determinate? And I wonder if allowing groups to have self-determination 
honest self-determination, allowing people to break off and decide to do whatever they want. Um, but then again, I think of Iraq where they, where the Kurds wanted self-determination, right. But they sat on all the, they sat on a, a large portion of the oil fields and, and the, and the rest of the groups are like, that's not going to happen. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's a typical complication. It's not, it's not always that easy to split things up, natural resources, et cetera. But just thinking of Yugoslavia, you guys saw that, that Djokovic won the, won the Australian Open last night, the men's final. And I don't know if you guys watched him play at all, but I stupidly bet against him last night. I really shouldn't have. But I was just thinking, you look at his face. I really think that he, you know, he was bombed by NATO as a kid during that whole nonsense. We were bombing him. And he, like, he was crouching in an apartment building while NATO bombs were coming down on him. I think he's got that rage. And I think that, that fuels his game to some extent. I mean, he off, broke man. that. Oh, yeah, it's awful. But he, 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 you look at his face. I don't think I'm imagining things. I mean, he, I look at him and I was looking last night. I stayed up and watched this. And you remember that scene in, uh, what was the movie with Luke Wilson? Behind Enemy Lines? Yes. Yes, I remember that. Rem- yeah, remember like the Serbian with the, with the Adidas tracksuit? That that shoots him down with the anti-aircraft missile. Yeah, and then he's he's the guy who's got to go track him the whole time. The snipe, right? Yeah, he's, he's got to. Yeah. He looks like that a little bit. I mean, he's uh, he broke Medvedev's spirit last night. It's just brutal. I mean, really, he's got that look on his face, like no mercy. And I, I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe I'm just imagining things, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was a formative experience. Like he's never said, "You guys are assholes for bombing me," you know. But I wonder. And it wasn't the Russians. The Russians were on their side. So I don't know. Maybe it's just a, it turned into a general rage on uh, on Djokovic's part. But I guess there's there's less healthy places you could direct than tennis. So good for him. I would think that it would be almost impossible for that not to uh, shape his life experience and his attitude toward life. Um, you know, I've ne- never been bombed, but that you would never forget that. Yeah. And it's it's funny because we like to think of ourselves as the good guys. Oh, we always do. Yeah. You know what else too I remember about that war was before that war, I remember they, there used to be a couple of sayings about who doesn't fight wars. One was democracies don't fight against each other, and then the other was countries that have McDonald's don't fight against each other. And then I remember the Wall Street Journal had an article about McDonald's and Serbia. And like what they did during the bombing to try to tamp down like anti-American hostility. I forget the details, but they obviously it was local franchises, but it was just kind of a weird situation to, to run a franchise that's that's thought of as an American icon while America is dropping bombs on you. It's just a bizarre situation. So this, I think right here, I, I want to try to segue into I, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in Texas. Um, I, I think, uh, um, and I'm not a big energy guy, so I'm not going to talk about, you know, the, what's it, ECOT or ESCOT, the, the Texas energy, um, uh, with their grid situation. And, and, uh, I know that, so I know they had a snap, a snap freeze, uh, down in Texas. Obviously a lot of people are, 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 they're still under a boil advisory, did we lose Gary? Uh, I'm not hearing it. Uh, that it's uh, happening down there. Um, I know a lot of the uh, uh, wind, uh, solar um, 
windmills uh, froze. And so, there was rumors that 20 to 25% of uh, Texas's energies came from windmills. So that yeah. was a big it's deal. Solar power too, right? It's yeah, exactly. Power. So I think, and I've said this before, this, not who the fuck am I? I've said that before. But I think building codes, like building codes in New Jersey are strict because it gets really cold here. It gets really hot here. I don't think that should be a state by state thing. I think building codes should be like, we're all the same country. Building codes should be building codes. Pipes should be buried in the ground. You know, these people are losing water because their pipes don't have to be three feet in the ground. You know, and that's just a broad way of time. I just, I, I feel like, why is that Catherine? I can't wait to hear. This. Well, no, I, I just, because each state knows itself best. And when apparently do they those... don't, apparently they don't. If a fucking freeze can, people are dying because they're getting asphyxiated from sleeping in their cars. They have no fucking heat. Like Neil, this is Neil. This is the third type of cold snap that's happened in in, doesn't in matter. the history of Texas. It doesn't matter. But, but one of them was was fairly what recent. Was like but how was that? In, in was in the nineties. I mean, it's not like this isn't something that's happened in living yeah, memory. This is a bullshit answer, Gary. I mean, you, this it's not hard to bury your pipes three feet in the ground. Like this should just codes should be codes. I'm not saying like here we are, Dave. I don't know where you are, but here on the East Coast, I'm in New Jersey. Uh, okay, so I'm okay. So am I, and we're very close to the to the ocean. So here you have to have like 90 mile an hour uh, hurricane proof windows. I'm not saying everybody should have to have that bullshit, but your pipes should be buried in the ground. Well, you know about the underground stuff. I, I mean, it would be expensive, but I've thought one general idea. Whenever there's a, there's a recession and people talk about we should do some stimulus and what should we do infrastructure. Why not have like some infrastructure projects that make sense that all the specs are done on the editon, so they really are ready that you could spend money on. And one obvious one to me, which would be a thing around here, is like our power lines are most of them are yeah. above oh, ground, man. and then it snows and there's a blizzard or something, and they come down. And yeah, that would be expensive, but put them underground, and then yeah. you don't have to worry about that. And you could have like latch panels where you could pull yeah. them up. And it would cost a lot, but over the long term, it would probably save a lot in terms safer. of it would be safer. For- it would be safer, yeah. It, it, like a car is not going to run into them or something like that. But as but as far as Texas, I think we have to separate the reality from the politics of it because as soon as it happened, people on both sides. I wrote an article about this for Zero Hedge last week. People on both sides were claiming that if their preferred policies happened, this wouldn't have happened. Like AOC was saying. This is what happens when you don't follow the Green New Deal. And then others, people on the right were saying, well, this is what happens when you, when you try to put windmills and green energy. In reality, the, the failures happen not just with windmills, but it also happened with natural gas, and it happened with coal. There, I'm not sure. Yeah. What's that? Because I, I think the main thing was, like you guys said, they, none of this stuff was winterized. And, yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and, and I, that was the big issue. And what I, what I can't stand is that people are using this as an attack on solar energy or wind energy. Look, that's progressive. That's great. But clearly, we can't rely on that yet. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be working towards that. You know? And, and again, pipes, if pipes were buried in the ground, maybe this wouldn't have happened, at least not to this extent. Well, you know what? I mean, it's, it's interesting to think of how this is going to the reverberations politically. Because one thing that was going on and we, people talked about during the election was – Texas turning purple and maybe in the future Texas flips blue and then Republicans are kind of screwed when it comes to winning the White House. And part of that was driven by by Democrats moving in from other states like California. So 
maybe this will scare some of them off. I mean, that's one thing that I guess would be a positive if you think about it from a yeah. terrible situation that's killed a lot of people for the for Republicans. But on the other side, it also kind of kills the Republican. It hurts the Republican brand and it hurts the, 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 the Texas brand because now you look Cruz. like – what's that? And Ted Cruz. Yeah, Ted Cruz is I part of that, right. It hurts him too. I mean, obviously, it, it, it wouldn't have made a difference if he were in Texas or in Cancun. He's not an executive. He's a senator. But, you know, no great loss to see his brand get knocked down. That guy wasn't going to do anything anyway. Well, uh, Gary, tell me. I'm not sure what's going on with the internet connection here, but uh, maybe if it was buried in the ground, this wouldn't be going on. That's, like mine. That's probably true. Uh, I, I, I think it's it's – it's interesting that Dave said the Republican brand is hurt when California has mismanaged and has blackouts all the time, and nobody says anything about the Democratic Party brand, and they've been California 30 years, although you can make the argument that Texas is being has been run by Republicans. Well, to be fair, some people, on, I mean, not in major media, but I know some people on Twitter were talking about, well, let's look at that utility in, in California, and it looks like they had some diversocrats that were running it and nothing good came of that but yeah right not at the national level no one's talking about it Debbie, is he in texas yeah he's in washington well oh, okay no we're in washington state but yeah. uh, i will say it is blustery here today we we are having we are having wind problems here so i can tell you that that might be an issue gary can you hear us now gary well i can this tell is you ironic that. for this is not ironic for me todd and dave if dave you can still hear me because yeah, i, I can still hear. I finally got my internet working for the first time in almost a year tonight. I was all excited about tonight and now everybody else have internet. Uh -huh, I've sure. vindicated. But <laughs> I will say this, uh, Texas, I heard had their, uh, had their uh, own independent uh, um, grid and it's not connected to the national grid. So that's an issue. Um, they, they always thought that was a great thing and it turned out to be not so good in this yeah. situation. You need to have a fail safe, don't you? I mean, that's just yeah. life. We don't have to be talking about power. I mean, you would think so. Yeah, you have a, a contingency plan. I, yeah. I, I, I don't understand that. I, I, I think I think Texas having a separate power grid is good, especially when Biden just allowed the Chinese government back onto our power grid. Yeah, but you're going to say that on a backhanded way. You're not going to really mean that. I mean, that's what we all have generators right now. Because at least uh, Dave, you're on the East Coast. After Sandy, every I don't know anyone that doesn't own a generator because of Sandy. We all I have. love an apartment. My mother has a house and she has a generator. Yeah, which, okay. and, and, and it wasn't just Sandy that knocked it out. I mean, it was. She had one before then? But, all right. No, I think it, it, no, I think after Sandy, but I think it, what I was saying was it, it, it didn't take a storm that big to knock out power for her. I mean, it happened, I think right. it happened like last year, the year before happens when there was year. wet snow. Well, yeah, it goes back to the whole power lines being above ground when right. you have. If it's if it's really cold snow and it's like kind of powdery, that's not usually an issue. But if it's like that heavy wet snow, like what we that, just had, like, yeah, and then that sticks on the, and then you have wind, and then that that weighs down trees and knocks them down, and then. But it was never. I mean, I'm I don't know how I'm not asking you, but I'm 41 years old. That was never an issue. It, it would happen for a couple of days, but with Sandy, it was I, we lost power for 16 days. Everybody was like, fuck oh wow, this. yeah. Everybody was like, fuck we, this. We, we didn't. We didn't lose it for that long. We, we lost actually, we had generators. You know? you know what? Actually, at the time, my girlfriend was uh, put up in Manhattan by our company. So I went there for a night. We stayed in a, in a hotel in midtown Manhattan. 
And Midtown was fine. It was just downtown was like, that yeah. was kind of a mess. It, it, that had to do with the elevation of Manhattan. Like Midtown. That's Manhattan the old was, school. Yeah, that's the old school. That's built on pilings and garbage. Yeah, it's, it's, it's higher up than, than downtown where I knew people that were downtown and they got totally. That's so, what I mean, so. downtown. Downtown is all like yeah, yeah, yeah. man-made, basically. Right. Some of it, like Battery Park is, is yeah. built on, Battery Park City is actually built in landfill, but they just expanded the island. To it. Are you back with us, Gary? I think so. I don't know what's going on. I always on. find it funny. I always find it funny. Like I, I've said to quote myself, like when like Georgia had like two inches of snow a few years ago and the whole state shut down. They're just not prepared for like what we're used to. You know, they can't. Nobody's got four wheel drive. They don't have salt and snow piles. Go ahead, Tom. To me, that's the uh, whole issue. It didn't seem like Texas was prepared for something like this. And for a, t- for a state as large as Texas not to be prepared. Um, I think they have the energy and the money to do all that. They just didn't. That goes to the larger issue, um, which is instead of spending trillions of dollars fighting foreign wars, if we had everybody, you know, I I saw a bunch of people, Dave, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but people were, um, and I think a lot of this started, I want to go back to the, the bridge collapse in Minnesota, but people were tweeting side-by-side pictures of American infrastructure with the uh, Chinese bullet trains and things like that. And everyone's like, why can't we have that? And it's like, because we've been spending trillions of dollars on foreign wars that could have easily have been invested. I know guys like libertarians, like Tom Woods and uh, guys like him always make the argument, you know, that that capital is wasted and you could have used all that money and, and basically put high speed rail all over the country, reinforced infrastructure two times over. But the way our political setup is, is that it's not sexy to do infrastructure projects. People just don't politicians don't want to do it. They don't want to spend the money because the political ROI is nowhere near um, uh, an ROI for doing some sort of like uh, community center or some, you know, some woke uh, project or something like that. And I think when I look at Texas versus California and even go, go to Flint, why did Flint, Michigan have to, um, uh, they had all that, that issue with the, with the lead water. They, all they needed was one, I think it was a machine or some sort of um, process when they brought the water in to add a, a certain chemical so that it wouldn't leach the lead out of the pipes, and Flint didn't want to pay for that when they. We'll took add the... other chemicals to our water so it'll be safer to drink. Yeah, but it's a it's a it's a chemical that has no, yeah. according to the the data, yeah. right? It's a chemical right, yeah. that has no bearing on us, and that it just helps. Not until it does. Until it does, right? Yeah, it's like fluoride, right? I mean, it was everybody had it until until you don't, and then. Um, but just like on the on the pipes, the, the um, they put some sort of phosphate in and it prevented the leaching from the lead pipes. And all you needed to do it was at the point of where the water went into your system. And Flint didn't even want to pay to have that system put in because the whole point that Flint had to get water from Detroit in the first place was that they didn't want to redo all of their their water infrastructure because they don't want to pay for it. And they want to kick it down, you know, kick the can down the line. And until we kind of wake up from this, um, you know, idea of going abroad. I mean, I remember what also made me think of everything is when Trump had the last uh, fight with Mitch McConnell over, 
uh, one of the spending bills and you see all this money we're sending. It was like $10 million to Pakistan for gender equality studies that we were sending them or a hundred million or something like that. And then it was just, they read down each country and all these countries are getting hundreds of millions of dollars. Mean, meanwhile, we got bad water in our cities. We've got, you know, infrastructure and power grids that are totally shot. Now the California stuff you could argue is mismanagement, but I'm sure their grid isn't the best. Um, and, and, and then we, even with Texas, you could argue, I mean, I, even if they had their own grid and had some of their own stuff going on. One of the other things I read, too. Sorry, I hate to kind of slam it all in, but I want to do it while the Internet is uh, allowing Slam it in. Slam it in, Gary. But the I, I saw that um, Texas went to the Biden administration and asked them if they if uh, the Biden administration would suspend regulations for their coal power plants so they could pump more energy before the solar vortex or the winter uh, vortex hit and the Biden administration said they could do it for 1500 megawatts, $1,500 a megawatt. So it totally made the price, um, you know, totally unsustainable. So they didn't, uh, pay that price to have the extra energy created to put on the grid. So, I mean, yeah. one thing, uh, yes. somebody had a good analogy for this. Um, Texas not having energy. It's like not being able to eat if you're in the middle of a grocery store. So Texas has all this energy um, possibilities and the fact that they had to go through this should not happen. It just shouldn't. And uh, I don't know what it is, it's a failure of, but I would hope that uh, it would get people to want to actually do something about infrastructure, at least on a state level, if nothing else. I would see the federal level, me being conservative, I, I try not to get the uh, federal government involved as much as I can, but if we need to do that, uh, we can. And I realize this is a once in a generation type storm. Texas really doesn't have a problem. Was it was it a, a big storm? Was it a storm so much as the freeze that came it's, after? It was the freeze afterward. That's true. That's true. It, it was a one-two punch. And I see we have Dave back. So, Dave, your thoughts on this? What are we talking about now? The storms or Texas? Or Yeah, we're still talking about Texas. Yeah. Well, the one point I made before was that people are trying to, with the sources of energy, there was some politics involved where people were trying to claim that what happened was a result of people of Texas relying too much on green energy, too little on green energy, when it really seems to be more a case of a lack of winterization. So, I mean, I guess that's one issue with it. And as far as the implications, I think we all agreed that it's probably not good news for Ted Cruz. Yeah, I mean, functionally, him going to, down to Cancun, I don't think really matters much. But the optics... That sounds like fun. That sounds like fun. Yeah, but the optics and the PR, that's not going to help him at all. It's just... you, know, you know something else, though? Um, someone the... pointed... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say he made the fatal mistake of apologizing. Once you apologize, it's game over. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You never get any credit for that. I mean, if you apologize to someone you know personally, it's one thing. But to the public, no, that doesn't help. But one thing uh, that also was used against Cruz was those text messages from his wife to their neighbors inviting them to come to to, I think, join him in a hotel before they went to Cancun. And 
someone else made an interesting point, which was when the Hunter Biden laptop scandal broke, Twitter was suppressing links to it ostensibly because it included hacked information, which wasn't really hacked. But that's pretty much the only time they've used that policy because they apparently didn't have any issue with someone taking, uh, what's her name? Cindy is his wife's name? Ted Cruz's wife? Heidi. Heidi, I'm sorry. They didn't have any problem with someone sharing Heidi Cruz's private uh, direct messages. No, there's a double standard, you know, what... uh... The media or people will share anything with the uh, from a Republican, a Democrat. They're obviously going to suppress um, as much as possible. But yes, you're right. I mean that that shouldn't have happened. Um, if a Democrat did that, I don't think you would have seen that at all. Uh, if if Andrew Cuomo, this stuff uh, is finally picking up steam. But if a Republican were involved in this kind of scandal. He would have already probably resigned from office. So, uh, you know, with the uh, nursing home deaths. Hey, uh, Todd, thank you for saying that. It it wasn't. Did I? I read that he. It wasn't. He counted the, the um. The nursing home deaths as hospital deaths. Is that what the what the uh, controversy is? Well, yes. He. he we he, were asking he, about that last week. Yeah, he's saying that. Um, <clears throat> that the, the number was not any different. This is his defense, but he was just saying uh, they were counting them as hospital deaths. And of course, to the victims, it obviously does matter, uh, yeah, but he's trying to spin it, uh, spin it as much as he can. But yeah, I mean, this is a huge controversy. And uh, finally, some of the Democrats in the New York State Assembly, you know, they're gonna look into it, so. Yeah. The one thing you have to learn from Andrew Cuomo, and you have to take this away, and this is the difference between Ted Cruz and Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo has a press conference, and he goes out there. There's reporters there, and he just goes, I didn't do anything wrong. I did nothing wrong, even though we all know, even though six months. I did not have relations with that woman. Yeah, but it's not working for him now, and I think the reason it's not is because he's, he's yesterday's news. This is what, his third term as New York governor. They've got a black woman as attorney general, Letitia James. They probably want her to be the next governor. And they, they, don't, need, they don't need Cuomo anymore. They're done with him. So that, that's why this is coming out now. It was suppressed before the election because it, would, it might have helped Trump and it might have hurt Biden in the general election. But now that's over. They they're throwing him to the wolves. Giuliani Jr. has a shot being the uh, was he talking about running for mayor for governor. I don't see him running for. Uh, I don't even know if he's running for anything at this point. I mean, I, I wouldn't start with governor of New York. That might be a little bit too too big a step. Don Jr. Don Jr. I I, I don't see. I don't think he's expressed an interest in running for anything, but to be honest, he's not that, I don't know. I don't think any of the Trump magic has extended to his kids. Ivanka may not realize that, but I don't think it has. Well, I think, I mean, so. Gary blames Ivanka for the the fall of the uh, Trump and empire, Trumpian empire. I I don't know if she had that much power. I, I, I think she's basically, I mean, if she were a Democrat, I think she'd be popular. She doesn't have 
really uh, to me what was interesting about Trump was was a couple of things. One was he bucked the the elite consensus on three major issues, and he and he he kind of tried to steer the country in the right direction on all three, and those were pointless foreign wars, trade, and immigration. Like he made major changes in. He was kind of stymied. It's interesting. The most on the war part, because they, the the deep state misled him about Syria. They they really and the and the media kind of went along with it. So he was kind of stymied. He also had some disloyal people working for him. I mean, I think if that guy who was the acting Secretary of Defense at the end, I think if Trump had another term, he would have actually gotten us out of Afghanistan, gotten us out of Iraq, and the the dozens of other countries that we have small operations going in. But that was interesting about him. And then the other interesting thing about Trump was his skill, at, his, his skill on a TV camera and his connection with, with audiences. They really, and I know we're going to talk about Rush Limbaugh later, but he had something that Rush Limbaugh had, that connection with an audience where people really loved him. And, and I don't think any of his kids have that. I think love is an optimistic word. In which case? I, I love them. I love them. I think you know his, you know people, his supporters. You know, they they love. literally chanted, "We love you." Now think about that. You, you, you're, I don't know if you're old enough to remember Reagan, but I mean, I, I, I don't. Do you remember anyone chanting "We love you" to Reagan at a rally? I mean, they did that for Trump, and they did that in the middle of nowhere. Like he would land an airplane in some tertiary airport, he would take that seven fifty seven, and they'd come out and they would chant, "We love you," and. I think that that was genuine. It's a genuine feeling that a lot of people in the country have towards Trump. And I don't see any other politician that has it currently. I'm still with you. So I think what, that, what Gary's going to say, I, I'm upset about his internet connection. What he's going to say is that he, he uh, this guy, uh, Gonzalez, has said that um, Ivanka's husband, Kushner, is has undermined Trump. He was a Trump advisor, and he, and he undermined, basically, he's a, Democrat, his dad's an extremely powerful Democrat, and he uh, undermined it. He was a Trump advisor because he married Trump's daughter and and undermined Trump everything Trump did for uh, you know his own political gain. Him, him and his father. So Gary hates the the Kushners. So that's kind of what he's saying, a dumbed down version of what he's saying. I would your take on that since we're recording and we can't hear Gary. I think that probably overstates the impact of Kushner. Kushner. I don't think he opposed Trump on the border. I don't think he opposed Trump, as far as I know, on immigration. I don't think he opposed Trump on trade. I know he sort of had an outsized role in foreign policy, but we got to give him credit for getting some of those peace treaties. And I know a lot of Trump supporters and, and, and Pedro would probably say, I didn't elect a guy to negotiate peace between Israel and the UAE or, or Bahrain or whatever. But you know what? Peace is better than war. And, Absolutely. And, and that's, those are real accomplishments. And, and all things equal, we're better off. And it's genuine peace. I mean, I remember someone posted a clip on Twitter of Israeli air control, air traffic control, speaking to uh, an Arab plane that was coming over. And they, they seemed like genuinely um, warm to each other and, 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 and kind of excited about the possibility of commerce and, 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 and trade and, and all that happening between their countries. And, and that's, there's no way to say that that's not a good thing. And Trump's the one who did it. Obama didn't do it. 
And for all the talk that people had before Trump came in, I mean, that, that wasn't the case. So as far as, um, I mean, I've heard a lot of stuff about what's good, what went on in the Trump White House. I know, I'm not sure if it was Pedro who said it or it was Ryan Gerdusky, but another theory was that Stephen Miller, who everyone likes, somehow was blocking other immigration restrictionists from being hired in the I, Trump White House. I, read, I remember reading that. I, I remember reading that. that. He didn't want Chris Kobach and and other big immigration hawks in there because Miller wanted to make that his thing. That, that could be the answer. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what happened. But the broader thing, I, the broader problem I think Trump had, and I, I think it's, it's, it's wrong to pin everything on Kushner, I think the bigger problem was he just didn't have enough people, people that were loyal and competent to work for him. And, and that's not entirely Trump's fault to begin with because he wasn't in politics and he, and he didn't really need a lot of competent people in his previous business, apparently, because he was the billionaire. And he had guys like Michael Cohen working for him, who yeah, graduated from the worst law school in the country. But you're fired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he should have. But Curtis Yarvin, you guys know, is Moldbug. One thing he said, he made this point in January of 2017, before Trump was officially inaugurated because there was some kind of left-wing blog. This is in comments on someone else's blog. And the guy was worried about Trump coming in and all his immigrant friends would get this. They, they wouldn't be able to study here, blah, blah, blah. And, and he was saying, you know, I have my, both my parents worked for the federal government. I've been watching this stuff for years. And I think less is going to happen than you think because the, the federal government does 10,000 things every day and 9,999 of them are going to be the same the day after Trump gets, gets inaugurated because he, he has no people. It's the very top of the pyramid is elected officials and their appointees. And then below that is the permanent government, what they call the deep state. And, and what I would have done if I were Trump, and I suggested this a few years ago, is he had a database of millions of small donors. These are people you know are loyal to you. Have them take like a Wonderlick exam, which is a really short IQ test that the NFL has. And out of that, like a, like a Series Seven. Yeah, well, it's, it's I mean, Series Seven requires some study. It's not just an IQ test. Like a Wonderlick is just basic math and whatever nonsense. Yeah. But and it's twenty minutes, and the Series Seven's like three hours. You got to bring your own lunch. Um, but anyway, the, the point is just you got millions of people that that love you and are loyal to you. Out of them, you could probably find thousands that are smart enough to work in government. Put him at the bottom level, and then by the end of his administration, at least he'd have some loyal people in there, you know. And I think, uh, and maybe some of them would have risen to the top, but maybe well, that, next time. Well, they got. I mean, they did that on purpose when they got rid of. I mean, that was Andrew Jackson. I, I I've, I've talked about this before because Trump's favorite president was Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson instituted the spoil system, but when you've had the, all those civil service reform. You don't even have to take a civil service exam anymore to get into a lot of these bureaucratic positions because they've done away with it under, you know, the guise of racial equality or diversity or all these other things. So, yes, Steve Saylor's written about that. I think that was under Carter. He's the one that got rid of it. And I mean, even even if you just had a civil service exam, forget about Republican or Democrat, you would at least have more competent people in government. Right. I mean, they may not be your your competent meaning they may not be the ones that are going to drive your policies but even that idea 
I I mean, you said give a, a thousand, uh, you know, Trump or you'd get a thousand Trump supporters who would pass the Wonderlic test or score. I don't know. Wonderlic, forget that. Give me the lowest scoring people on that test and I'm putting them in the bureaucracy because that's exactly what we have now. I don't even want the high scoring people. Forget that. I just want my people in there and I want a dumb dumb in there who's going to do. I mean, I, I mean, you mentioned Yarvin before. And uh, we had another guest on previously who was also talking about Yarvin and brought up the point that Yarvin said, you know, uh, about, um, you know, having power and wielding power. And, you know, we, we, we tend to, and I'll, I'll lump you in here with us, Dave, and we, you know, we tend to have this idea of how things should work and, you know, hey, you know, there should be some merit to it or we should have the best and brightest and we should do this. But when you're when you're wielding power it would just to me the point would be just get people in there like take that donor list no, I, I think i must agree with you i'm not saying you take the the absolute the smartest guys what gets in you have a cutoff and then above that cutoff you interview and you do other kinds of selection because and this is kind of tricky there was a really good uh russ dowd hat or dowd i guess is how he pronounces it i don't read all stuff regularly but he had a good column years ago about the the downsides of meritocracy. And the example he used was one of our former governors here in New Jersey. Um, who's the guy I'm thinking of? The one who was in that car crash and almost killed himself. And then he, he used to be at Goldman Sachs. And then Corazon. after he was... Corazon, Corazon. yeah. So he, he was kind of a terrible governor in New Jersey. And then afterwards, he goes to, I think it was MF Global. And, and he lost $20 billion. <laughs> he stole client money. He literally took money out of client accounts to, to pay for... Yeah, it was just, uh, I mean, and, but this is a guy who, he wasn't like some hereditary elite. He was what our meritocracy selects for. He was a talented student. He was smart. He was a basketball player. He played well. He got into all the good schools. He served in the military. He moved up the ranks. And he ended up being like a disappointment. So, And now the, you have that with Phil Murphy. <laughs> yeah, right. We have another Goldman Sachs uh, alumnus in there. So, so you're right that if you just focus on meritocracy and merit's kind of a silly word because scoring well an IQ test doesn't mean you're a meritorious person. It just means you did, you know, you're smart. Um, that has its downfalls too. But the main thing is, and, and really along these lines, I kind of, after, uh, after the whole situation with Trump's judges, I, I started to think, you know, maybe George W. Bush wasn't a complete idiot for nominating Harriet Myers for the Supreme court. His that that woman that everyone said, well, who the hell is she? She's some lawyer for Texas. But it was smart in the sense that let me get someone who's loyal to me who's going to do what I want to do instead of what the what Trump did. I mean, it's better than what the Democrats would have done, I assume. But he gets these Federal Society dorks and he, and he gets the list from them. And these people <laughs> are smart. And then they come in and they, they, they rule against you half the time. Well, I mean, I. I, you look at John Roberts and he's just been a complete disaster. But, you know, the, the irony of it is, is that, again, I go back to the idea of power where those liberal justices, you you'll never, ever, 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 ever have to worry about Sotomayor or Kagan uh, voting for a possible like you if there was a two A thing, they're going to vote against it every time. You don't even you could. You could put money on it that they're going to vote against it. You never have to worry about it where right. you where your butt puckers when it comes to like a close issue and you've got these conservative justices and you're, you're like, we're supposed to be six to three. 
But then you get the ruling and you're like, oh, my goodness, where the heck did these people go? Um, they start going all over the field. But, you know, the 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 Kagans, the Sotomayors, when you had Ruth Bader Ginsburg, those people are rock solid. And it's like if we could ever get someone who's rock solid on the opposite side, um, you know, the, you, you wouldn't go through this. But it's like every time there's a court case now, it doesn't matter if there is. You know, that's why I always kind of laugh that the Democrats freak out that, quote unquote, all these conservatives are getting on the court because you look at uh, who is it? Stephen Breyer. Wasn't Stephen Breyer supposed to be a big conservative and he wound up turning into a big liberal mush? I mean, you always. Yeah, that. many such cases, as they say. Yeah. So well, I mean, that's another reason where if if Democrats were honest with themselves, they really wouldn't be that worked up about elections like they are. Because what's the worst case scenario? The people usually say, well, the most, the biggest thing a president can do is nominate Supreme Court justice. Okay, well, if you have a conservative or a Republican president, let's say, and he nominates Supreme Court justices, there's like a good, at least a 50% chance they're going to vote the way you want. And those are the, 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 the judges nominated by the, the other side. Whereas in our case, there's pretty much 100% chance they're going to vote the way you don't want yeah i i think i mean that just in the end i think in four years i think mitch mcconnell love him or hate him mitch mcconnell won because he got trump to do the do the judges he got trump to give the big corporate tax cuts and uh trump really had to fight and for every little scrap that he got and the other thing i wanted to bring up before when i was fading in and out when you guys were talking about uh the Israel deals with Kushner and things like that. Gary, the show is better when your internet wasn't so good. <laughs> Thanks. Um, the 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 one thing I wanted to mention was, or at least get your take on what you thought with the uh, North Korea, because it really looked like for a small window there that Trump was actually going to get some sort of agreement or some sort of concession from North Korea. And it, it was like he got sandbagged at every every turn it seemed like the deep state was working against them in that respect i mean what what do you think on the the whole korea thing was that question who was that question for for me yeah just uh, oh, just your uh, thoughts oh well, my thoughts were trump did good work on that and i think i think he didn't get enough credit for that either i mean there was no official agreement out of that but there was a real détente after what he did i remember there were i think the first meetings between south and north korean leaders in a long time and like, like I said before, I mean, peace is much better than war. And, and he did not get enough credit for that. And I think that's another thing where if Trump had a second term, maybe he could have really, really nailed that. And he had the right intuition. I, I like the idea that he had of scheduling that meeting with, with the guy from North Korea in Singapore. And he basically said to him, well, he understands real estate. He understands development and all that. And he's like, look around. This could be you. Look at these buildings. Look at this prosperity. The only thing between between that and you is peace and normalized relations with, with everyone else. Um, if Trump had his way, I think that, that, that gets solved. I think the, the, I think the default like uh, view of the U.S. State Department, that's not what they want. They, they're, they don't just want peace. They wouldn't want... Kim in power. They would want, you know, gay pride and all that nonsense. And, and they, they just raise the bar at such a level where they want that whole globo 
homo to use the the you know the the kind of colloquial term for it basically our current ideology that has to be accepted lock stock and barrel whereas peace should be sufficient which is why they'll never actually when you you know it's that's a great point right there and i want to take that and say that's why they'll never really engage with russia in a in a in a honest in an honest way right because they know the russians will never even if the russians conceded to hey tear down nord stream 2 uh stop threatening poland and uh, give crimea back to the ukraine and putin putin or whoever's there after putin was like absolutely they know that they could never get that other piece of the agenda through. And that's why they'll never, they'll never look at uh, Russia or try to do anything as an honest broker with Russia until they think they can, they can crack that nut open and, and actually force that through. That's why they're playing games in Belarus. And, um, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're a fear of uh, allowing NATO to transform into something else instead of this, you know, whatever it exists as today. Um, I, I really think that that uh, they'll always use Russia as the, as the boogeyman, and I mean, even as China's making inroads. And, I, and I, I don't and I'm kind of finding myself as one of those people who think that, yeah, China is China is definitely someone to keep an eye on. I think China poses a threat, but I don't think um, you see like the neocons and some of the other conservatives shift into this like. They want this Cold War paradigm. Everybody has this hard on to go back to the Cold War. It's, I, I always thought that was pretty interesting after the fall of the Soviet Union. They're always looking for that. Um, they weren't satisfied in a unipolar world. They're always looking for this bipolar world. They always need an opposite to the United States, right? And it kind of – Russia you can't even do, really, because they don't even measure up to economically and militarily anymore, yet they still kind of have or have this, like, hidden – boogeyman status and then even with the chinese i mean um, those russian women though goddamn we'll import them yeah import <laughs> that bring that in right chinese too i mean holla. so i i just always thought that was i was uh pretty interesting i mean dave you're from new jersey there's lots of russian female immigrants here like good lord oh yeah we've got a stripper on my uh, floor <laughs> ekaterina nice so you know <laughs> I mean, what's your what's your what's your thoughts, Dave, on the whole Russia perspective? What do you think I'm uh, off base when I say that? You yeah, guys not entirely. I, I, I think the issue with Russia was it, it was a good bogeyman because, in part, we already had sanctions on them, and if you look at their economy, it's like one, I don't know, like one tenth or one twelfth the size of China. So there's less money to be made in Russia. So there was let for our elites that were doing business in, in other places. There's there's there was no real downside to them saber rattling against Russia. And it's entirely stupid. There, there's nothing expansionist about Russia after, since the end of the Cold War. And if anything, NATO's the one that's been expansionist, going beyond its verbal agreement with Russia to, to take in these, these Central European countries. So I think it's bad. I think it's stupid. And I think it's stupid on a couple of levels. One, there's no reason we shouldn't be at peace with Russia. And if anything... China is the obvious. I mean, we shouldn't be have a cold war with China either, because that's just a giant waste of energy. But it's clearly our geopolitical rival. And if anything, you would want Russia in our tent pissing out, then you know, 
in, in China's tent and pushing them in that direction. That makes zero sense at all. So if it were up to me, I would have either gotten rid of NATO or invited Russia to join it. I mean, Russia makes more sense as a NATO component than That's Turkey. A That's a great point. I mean, can yeah. you imagine going to war with Russia, uh, World War III, with Russia over Turkey? I mean, that's literally a possibility that we're, we're treaty bound at this point to defend Turkey, this Islamic country that we have pretty much nothing in common with against Russia. It makes no sense at all. Well, wasn't the whole point of, uh, wasn't the whole strategy of bringing Turkey into NATO in the first place? Well, it was like a two-part strategy. One, it was a gateway into the Middle East. And two, it was to help cool tensions with Greece, like in the 70s. Um. I don't remember the details of it, to be honest. I know that Greece, obviously Greece and Turkey have long had conflict. And I know that Greece in the 70s, there was a big communist threat in Greece itself. So, um, but I, I don't recall the logic behind putting Turkey in it. I, I just don't think the logic stands now. Is this the, uh, like what I've talked to you, to Todd and Gary about in the past, with the systems of a down when they, uh, they talk about the Turkey, uh, the Armenian genocides, Turkey and Armenian genocides. Yeah, yeah. To Arme Armenia, Turkey, Armenian gen genocide. Yes. Did you guys ever watch? Uh, turn on the audio here so you can see the the cats on my shoulder. Nice. He just jumped up there. Um, did you guys ever watch Ray Donovan, the the Showtime series? I've never seen it. No. Oh, there's a really funny. Uh, well, it's not like intensely funny. I guess it was kind of funny. There's a there's a clip <laughs> where. Well, to me, it was, but uh, yeah, I, I think it was the best scene in the episode. I'll, uh, I'll tweet it to you guys, but he, he goes to meet this, uh, this Armenian pop star in Los Angeles, and she's like, yeah, I don't know, she's like 30 years old or something, and then, because his father's in trouble with some Armenian mobsters, and then she starts, she, she talks about how her great-grandparents were like hung from a lamppost during the Armenian genocide. And your government doesn't recognize the genocide of my people. So why should I care what's going on with your father? And then at the end, he's like, fair point. Sorry about your great grandparents. He walks away. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'll see, you got to see it. But it, it's, no, I get it. I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah. So, well, no, I think it's, and then it's I easier think... to put anything personal to it, is, is what your point is. It's, it's easier to, when it's personal, it's more personal. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the, the, the point of just kind of making that an issue a uh, hundred years later, I mean, obviously it's an issue for, for historical purposes, but I, I think up to this point, I don't think Israel recognizes the Armenian genocide, do they? I mean, wasn't that an no. issue where to, to maintain relations? And the reason they did was because they wanted to have good relations with Turkey, which was, was kind of an ally of theirs for a long time. I don't think under the current Islamic leadership, they've been that friendly with Turkey, but... It's crazy to me. It just didn't happen. Like all these yeah. What were you going to say, Gary? I'm sorry. Well, no, I, I think I think the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict was a pretty interesting um, snapshot that's kind of now just kind of is done and dusted, but just the international implications in that because you had the... Tur you had, again... Uh, I think, Dave, you, you brought up a good point about wanting to bring Russia into the fold. We're forcing all of these odd alliance and combinations where the Turks and the Russians were allied 
in giving, I think, the Azerbaijanis um, weaponry and support to some extent when traditionally Armenia had been an ally of Russia and Turkey obviously supporting Azerbaijan. And when you had the Armenian government had basically deposed a pro-Russian prime minister and they brought in this Soros-backed guy, and that's when the Nagorno-Karabakh um, conflict kicked off again, which was, uh, you know, again, it's like you, you, you have all these strange bedfellows, and if we could just get our, our foreign policy just in a correct posture, we wouldn't be in this situation. Then there was even talk about, like, us getting involved. It was like, no, there's no way. It was like, there's no way I would ever support us. It's like, I don't want us even in Syria, let alone getting involved in Azerbaijan and Armenia. It's like, I, I, we've got, like, no play in that. And then, and then those are all regional conflicts that the neocons here in D.C., man, they cannot wait to sink their teeth into. And you, you just see that, the, the conflagration uh, um, of those... Uh, Good word of those countries just wanting to be something that we automatically adopt. And that's, again, that's like when I look at Syria and how they fought Trump tooth and nail to get us like out of Syria. And then they basically kind of okie doked him when he did, I think, what was that like his first weekend and he dropped a missile, a cruise missile in Syria or something to that, to that effect. Yeah. This is when Trump became president. They, I think that's what the journalist said, but to tie this into the whole, uh, the, the, the domestic energy situation, Texas and all that, think about this, uh, the pipeline that Biden canceled. Yeah, what's up with that, man? Well, I mean, just think about the implications for NATO and for Europe. I mean, one of the things that makes NATO kind of silly as it's currently constituted is it's supposed to be an alliance against Russia where Germany and much of, uh, of Central Europe is now dependent on Russia for natural gas. So, I mean, it, you're going to be dependent on your enemy. You're buying gas from your so-called threat or enemy that could literally make you star uh, freeze to death in the winter so if, if russia were really that kind of a threat you wouldn't put yourself at at that kind of mercy them but if the alternative is to buy natural gas from say the united states and the united states is just gonna shut down production when uh when you know democratic president comes in that that's that's less reliable than russia so let's let's build that pipeline in russia yeah, I, we've had so I've had my uh, my friend Edwardus, who's a, a Lithuanian national, on the show before, and that was really the only you know because his position is, and then of course, I mean, when you look at the historical, um, you know, issues that Lithuanians and and Poles have had with Russians, and and then again his close proximity to Russia, right? He he wants us. He wants us there. He wants us in the middle, sure. and and you can't blame you know when you look at. Uh, Right. Because I, I always love Trump. Trump was like America first. And then someone was like, well, what about that country? He goes, well, their leaders should say their country first. Right. I mean, it was always that idea. And I think when you look at it from a Lithuanian perspective, Lithuanian first policy is to have us in the middle between them and Russia to be either the, the barrier or the, um, uh, you know, their, their hired muscle. Uh, to fight if Russia, you know, creeps in and they could argue their historical beefs and everything like that. But he did concede, you know, he conceded the point. He's like, yeah, I could see where the American po populace, because he was, he was a little bit disenchanted as to why I wasn't, a, I didn't really believe Russia was as big of a, 
uh, of an enemy as they should be because he his point was that they were really bad and that they're a gangster state and they do really bad things and i was like well so does a lot of countries and then my point was that so how, do so do a lot of countries yes yeah, so do a lot of countries and uh the the other thing is is that the there's the germans aren't paying their share into nato we're picking up the bar tab and yet they're buying gas from the Russians who, to your, what you're saying, right, is like that the whole alliance is set up to box the Russians in. You know? yeah, the whole thing makes no sense. But I think maybe your, your Lithuanian friend is, is fighting the last war. Uh, it doesn't look like Russia has any, any inclination of invading Eastern Europe. I mean, why would they? But also, what are they getting with that American, that American alliance? I mean, if you look at what what they're trying to keep out of Poland and about out of Hungary. I mean, you want, you want to pause your entire country because of some theoretical fear that Russia is going to become the Soviet Union again. It just seems like maybe that's not a trade-off worth making. Yeah, that is. And it is interesting because you see that the, that Poland and Hungary and those countries, and I said this to, I said this to him as well, not to rehash that old, old, old episode, but, I said to him, I go, what's stopping Poland, Lithuania, uh, you know, Romania, Hungary from forming their own kind of collective military, you know, uh, you know, alliance or, you know, tr- you know, n- not even a, an aggressive posture, but doing shared training exercises like most military alliances do now. Re- right. It's just really just shared training exercises, maybe sh- uh, having officers train at different schools and stuff. I mean, it's no different than what we do with our quote unquote allies, right? We bring them over to Fort Benning and they go through all the, it used to be called the school of Americas. You had stuff like that, where they would bring all the Latin American countries and train them through that. And we still have programs that do that, but, but I think like, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, that, that's a great point. It's like, you know, Russia, I don't think is, is in that position to even attempt to do anything like, create a second Soviet Union. And, you know, quite frankly, Hungary and Poland are passing laws where pretty soon they're just going to come into a direct confliction with the State Department because the State Department is not going to allow them to continue. I would say I'm going to you know, talk about Poland here. Uh, you know, Poland has a, a still sh- very, very staunch traditionalist Catholic um, culture in their country and they're pretty soon they're going to run afoul of the State Department who's going to want to break down all of those things because I think the polls still vote against like gay marriage they still vote against a lot of those cultural things that uh, like you had mentioned before with like the global homo that you know Poland is going to wind up if they stay with their own Polish culture going to wind up diametrically opposed to the United States especially if the United States gets woker and woker as we push you know if if, if buying our guns means that you have to radically change what your culture is, then perhaps maybe you stop buying our guns. I mean, I, don't I, and say, I don't know. Don't keep saying woke, bro. I hate that word. Well, it's, it's, it's true. It's like forever. It's like forever home. I fucking hate that. That those that's two words. Have you guys ever heard of Simon Mole? M O L. I have not. It's a pretty interesting story. If you go to Wikipedia, he was a, well, I'll let Wikipedia describe it. A Cameroon-born journalist, writer, and anti-racist political activist. He sought asylum in Poland. He got there in 2000, and he became a well-known anti-racist campaigner. 
he was then charged with knowingly spreading the HIV virus. And I mean, he had sex with like hundreds of Polish women, I think, or a lot of them. And how many did he kill? Um, so he had he had heterosexual sex and spread HIV. That's funny I think that you so. Say yeah. That. Funny that you say that, Dave. Was it? I, didn't I think that was. It was. Possible. I mean, I don't know. He was taken to custody by the Polish police for infecting his partners with HIV. I. I guess it's possible, but it, but there's usually. No, I'll be as a wise ass. I, me and Gary get into it all the time. Just no, but you bring up in the United States. Um, if you look at the statistics, it's AIDS is almost always, it's, it's a very black and brown disease. In addition, I mean, other than gay, like even white gays, I think are a minority. But what ha- I think the reason why it's it's prevalent in the in the black community partly is because homosexuality is not really as open there. I guess so. There's they call the down low, and I think it's blacks that are bisexual. Black men are giving it to the women. I think that's what's going on. But I think typical heterosexuals, the chances of catching AIDS are probably pretty low. Whereas if you guys remember, like the media was portraying it entirely the opposite decades ago. They wanted everyone to be afraid that you were at high risk of catching AIDS. Well, that was I think there's a guy, uh, prog rock farmer. I don't know if you follow him. Yeah, Nicola Soto, sure. Yeah, um, I find that fascinating. He has that hu- that huge story. One of his uh, big stories was the how how it it came how AIDS came to be in the United States and how they tried to track it medically. And when they found the patient zero and stuff, it was that Quebecois um, flight attendant, right? Yeah, the flight attendant, and they were like, "You're you're," they basically told him they. Uh, they were like, hey, man, you have this weird new disease. It's killing people, and you need to stop having sexual relations with other men. And he was like, fuck you. I'm no, not pun in- no pun intended. No, that's yeah. re- he, he said that to the doctor. He's like, he's like uh, I'm not going to stop fucking. So that's you know, I was watching, uh, I was watching like the Seinfeld rerun the other night, uh, and there was a commercial for some AIDS drug. There usually is. And it, it showed like this kind of black gay dude and he has a very full life where he, he goes to brunch with people and all this stuff. And like the first line was like, keep Gotta being go you. <laughs> no, it says keep being you. Like, don't change what you're doing. Just take this drug. Right. Like, don't change. You know, so what are you going to do? Yeah. Funny how that all goes in. And it's interesting because we were tweeting. Uh, I was tweeting with someone talking about Russia again to bring this back to Russia about Kaliningrad. And uh, one of the guys was like, yeah, nobody cares in Eastern Europe about because someone was like, well, geez, Russia has that little uh, what do they call it? Uh, exclave uh, Kaliningrad right there in between Lithuania and Poland. And they, they'll they'll use that to to create a wedge into Europe. And, and they talk about putting, putting missiles there like a few years ago. I yeah, think that was they, uh... have, they have a ton of military already there. I mean, I've visited Lithuania and went on the uh, there's these hills you can stand on. It's like some World Heritage site. And you can look down into, um, obviously not all of Kaliningrad, but you can look down into like the border checkpoints of Russia because mm. it's a Russian border checkpoint, and it's like heavily militarized. But uh, yeah. but but this, uh, I guess he had the Lithuanian flag in his. I'm gonna assume he's a Lithuanian. I don't know who the guy is, but he was like, yeah, there's nothing there. He's like, but Russian military, some old crappy missiles and AIDS. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, AIDS. <laughs> 
I was like AIDS. I was like, are you just, and, and I, I put AIDS in a question mark in my mind. I'm like, is this Lithuanian guy just like shitting on the Russians? Right. You know, like, and he was like, no, seriously, there used to just be a, ba- a lot of bad needle drugs in. Yeah. I was like AIDS really. Which and he's a, like, that's the root of all evil. Like we've said in the past, big farm is the root of all evil. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. Sack, the sacklers and all that stuff. But, but yeah, he was like, yeah, like, I, I don't know if I agree with that entirely, to be honest with you. I, I mean, there's, Obviously, anything can be abused, but if you've ever had an operation and you've been, you've been prescribed opiates, I mean, you kind of need them. It, there's really nothing else. Right. The problem is that, that they know they're addictive, right? And if not they for want... everyone. I still have uh, I still have a Percocet sitting in a bottle over here. Say that again. I'm sorry. I still have a Percocet left over from a shoulder operation. Well, well not for me either. I've yeah. had I've had surgeries yeah. where I didn't even take the because I didn't like the way they made me feel. But yeah, like Todd would say, told told totalitarianism nothing works for everybody and sure. clearly you know opioids are, are are a real pandemic in this in this world let alone this country yeah but i don't think it's i think it's i think it's other factors that are driving people to them. I, don't, I don't think we can blame the sacklers for example for you know the our factories getting offshore things like that i think well, that i don't them. i don't I think, think they prescribe them to everybody and you know they throw enough shit to the wall uh, you know what? When I was getting them, it was like it was a little tougher to get them than it was a normal drug. For one thing, you needed a written prescription, and you couldn't just call in a refill. You had to actually have the doc. You know, he had to sign the thing. You had to go there in person. Not that he was like being stingy with them, like during during rehab. He's like, oh, here, I'll, I'll give you some more. But honestly, to me, if you had a really bad headache, those Percocets would would, would fix it. If you have post operative pain, it's like not really. It's just maybe taking a tiny bit of an edge off. It's, well, it's not that strong. So, I, I mean, I agree. So I agree with Neil, but not necessarily. Maybe you're stronger than maybe like, I'm not, I'm not being a wise, but maybe you're stronger than, than people that, you know, some people that become addicted. Some people you know, have more every story for, that you yeah. have. Cause that's a great, and I'm not being a wise, every, that's a, that is a great story about using them correctly. But for every story like that, there are people that fucking get addicted, and then they tell you, you can't have them anymore. And they well, let me give you an example from my mother, because my mother was my mother was prescribed uh, Percocets, I think it was, after an operation, and she didn't take them because she heard all the stuff about opioids are bad, blah blah blah. So she took, I think, Tylenol or something. And said she ended up back in the hospital with ulcers because the the amount of Tylenol you need to take to to. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's just not going to work. It's yeah. it, it, it doesn't even do it. So yeah. it, it just I, all I'm saying is, yeah, obviously there's there's risks involved, but maybe a balanced perspective is important. Well, That's, um, go ahead, Don, go ahead. I, I'm, um, you know, I have mixed feelings about big pharma, but mostly they're they block a lot of natural remedies and things like that. So, you know, for all it that it's done good and it has done a lot of good with drugs and helping us. It's also, uh, they don't want us to look at any other natural way to uh, try to get um, pain relief and of the sort. So I do have mixed feelings about that. And, and you know, you, you make, you make, I think you make a great point that, you know, it works well if you stay within their parameters, but that doesn't work for everybody, unfortunately. My, my experience, my only, my only beef with the Sacklers was that when they went and they hid all that information saying how addictive the drugs were, 
right? Because I think, I think when you have all the information, that's what they got. I thought that was what they got in trouble for was the fact that they had hidden a bunch of studies that had showed the, the extreme addictiveness of the opioids. This was, this was news to people. Well, okay. I mean, hey, Dave, on a side note, Dave, I talk shit about drugs as I'm chugging beer on Sunday night. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Looks like you got some wine in the back there, too. Who the fuck am I? What came first, the wine or the beer? The wine was for from last night or something? Or? Me? I don't drink wine. There's wine yeah, behind you. That's probably, that's, that's my wife or baby mama. That's been there for probably since the summer. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I don't drink wine. That, that beer is probably... Uh, Lots of beer. Lots of beer. That's sure. where we uh, digress. Lots of beer. Todd, Todd's I'm, the wine drinker. I'm, in the I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, yes. Uh, I don't really drink much beer. So, uh, exactly. Except last night. Fine. Sorry, Gary. Go ahead. No, I, I was just saying, and, and yeah, Dave, I know it's the, it's like, yeah, opioids. Who knew they, they weren't but the fact that they went and hid that information if that's true what you're even saying then why even hide it and just say yeah they're really addictive but they're really helpful when people like dave have sh- sh- shoulder surgery or you know or that sounds reasonable sure. but y- you know what i mean and that and then they get themselves into trouble it's like well, why hide it you're just developing a joy just come out and say it i think i mean that, that that's probably part of the issue i mean i want to tie this i could take this right now to covid right i think I think that's part of the problem with these vaccines. It's like, give us all the information. If it's going to scramble my DNA and make me, you know, have a third arm at some point, grow out of my back, um, you know, then then third arm in my pants. (laughs) I should probably I should probably know that. But the fact that they're kind of um, I saw one. We're not promoting cheap, cheap remedies or or prophylactics like vitamin D and zinc, that kind of thing. Well, hydrochloroquine. I uh, think we are. The remdesivir. Yeah, well, because you can't make money off of remdesivir or hydrochloroquine. It's cheap. That's why nobody in Africa and India are showing the type of COVID numbers we were. It was because they all take that for malaria and stuff like that. Yeah, someone talked about uh, India prescribing some uh, blister pack, which had, I think, the zinc. It had the vitamin D. It had some kind of antibiotic and some other stuff. And uh, we're, I don't think we're doing something similar. But, yeah, you're right. Well, see, if we're going to talk about COVID here a little bit, uh, my grandmother actually did get vaccinated. Really? Uh, this week. What'd but she get? What'd she, she get? She got the Moderna, but see, she's 92. So if there was any uh, bad effects in the long run, that's not going to affect her. So I'm like, that, that's fine, you know. Um, but we still don't know what the effects are with this How's vaccine. Feeling? How's she feeling? Oh, she took it fine. And yeah, no yeah, big yeah, deal, yeah. no... Yeah, she was happy. Listen, if she's 92 already, she's a survivor. I'm not worried about her. <laughs> oh, she's a fighter. Uh, Gary knows that. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Gary, you were over there this weekend? I was. We, we yeah. set up, so that's did one of the big... Did you get interrogated? Yes, grandma? I did. That was one of the big... I got Todd out of the house. He hadn't been out of the house in a while, so I got him out. You guys go have a beer? That's exciting. We did. Nice. We did. We had a beer. We had we had Todd uh, treated me to a fantastic meal. We went out. You let Todd pay you, motherfucker. Yeah, he's well. You guys all know each other. Just maybe this is old news for your regular podcast listeners, but I'm just curious. So I grew up with Neil um, and then I was in the in the military and I wound up across. You met a girl. I met a girl. I wound up uh, across the country. Um, 
in the Pacific Northwest where uh, Todd, I met Todd. Todd and I are uh, uh, good buddies. Uh, Todd used to have a lot of, um, well, still, well, st- well, before COVID, right? Um, Pre-COVID, Todd was a ticket guy. Todd had tickets to a lot of games. He had, uh, before Todd's high I- risk. Todd's high risk, so he's super locked. He's been super locked in his home for a year already. So I've known Todd for about nine years since I've been out here because we used to just uh, uh, meet up and go to a lot of games. He had known uh, my wife before I met her because they used to go to uh, Mariners games together or met, or met at a Mariners game or something like that. So you guys are in Seattle. Uh, yeah, we're in the area. Yeah. Me and Todd okay. are. And then I grew up in New Jersey, so I'm from Jersey originally. Oh, OK. OK. I have a buddy that moved from here to, to Seattle. I'm in uh, Monmouth County, Dave. I don't know where you are, but I'm in Monmouth County. I'm, I'm from Bergen Ber- County. I'm from Bergen County, Rutherford, New Jersey. That's where I'm from. Okay, I'm in Hackensack now. Oh, okay. Right. Grew up in, okay, yeah. And I'm nice. now now I'm down in uh, Wall, New, Wall Township, New Jersey. Okay, yeah. I, I, I go to the beach around there, not too far. So, and then, I, I again, I grew up with Neil in, in Monmouth County. And, yeah, my, my well, I guess my family's originally from Essex. So, up in Essex. I, I, when, uh, when, um, when the election was over, so Gary and Todd have been doing this podcast for a while. And when the election was, since we're talking about this, when the election was going, I shouldn't say over, when the election was going on, I called Gary wasted. And I said, Gary, it sounds like Donald Trump lost the election. And Gary was like, Donald Trump didn't lose the election. What's your email address? <laughs> and uh, that night I was on this podcast and uh, I've been on every weekend since. Oh, wow. Is that a, and that's why I have no fucking idea what you guys are talking about when you guys talk about intelligent things. We we um we roped you in, Neil. And I'm glad we roped you in. Yeah, yeah. And I love Gary. And if you see how happy the cat is on Dave's shoulder, I kind of want you to be happy like that every once in a while. I always give Gary shit because he's never happy. He's always upset. That's not true. I am you happy. I'm just, just happy look, being look upset. Just look at the cat. <laughs> yeah, he's very loud. See, we had a cat on the show today, and then I'm pretty <laughs> sure you guys heard my dog as well. So, yeah. So, uh, this means uh, you'll be on again, right, Dave? Not after sure. Not after sure, that sounds... <laughs> <laughs> we could do that. How long do these podcasts normally go for? Uh, usually around two hours. So we're getting two hours to the, max. We're yeah. getting to the point where we're probably just going to okay. start start wrapping it up but that was a nice you guys wanted to wrap up talking about rush was that the plan yeah we were gonna you guys didn't had you guys not talked about rush i'm i know i came to the game late a little bit but not uh not too much i i just want to say i'm a couple of years older than uh neil and uh gear so i grew up um uh listening to rush in in 92 i remember when clinton won he um started uh um, starting a show with America held hostage. Yeah, I remember that. 37, day 105. I, I think Hannity uh, copied that too. Well, that was one yeah. of the things. Yeah, he copied yeah. that. The greatest thing Sean Hannity ever did was ride Rush's coattails for a long time until he could build his brand because he really. Oh, sure. Yeah. That's he true. absolutely did. Because I remember. So let's. Uh, Let's do this then. If we, we just want to speak on Rush a little bit, I'll, uh, I think, Todd, that's a great, great way to start. Um, I just want to give a quick, a quick Rush story. Um, so oh, when you guys are in school together? Yeah, when I was in school with Rush. Uh, no, so, so Rush was really, uh, and, and Dave really hit on this before about just kind of like, like the Trump Rush 
how Rush could just appeal to everyone, uh, everybody and have – you almost felt like he was just sitting in the room with you chatting, I think, on a show, which, w- which is what made Rush so great. And um, there was a, a time I, uh, about a couple of years ago where I was transitioning between jobs and uh, I was uh, out of work and I was really feeling uh, pretty crummy about what was going on. I, I really didn't see a lot of prospects for a lot of things. And uh, every day I was uh, sending out, you know, five, 10 resumes uh, to different companies and not really getting any hits or having an interview and then nothing really come out of it. And uh, uh, one day uh, and, and every day I would uh, always listen to the radio when I would, I would get up in the morning like it was a regular work day and just work on pumping out resumes and things of that nature. And and uh, one day I was just feeling particularly crappy about what was going on. And uh, I, I put on uh, Rush's show and he it just so happened to be a show that he talked about how, how he got started on his show, how his how he came to be. He goes, everybody sees the Jets and the EIB golden microphone, he goes, but it wasn't always like this. And he talked about his time uh, when he was uh, uh, a radio guy for the Kansas City um, Royals, how he was making only $27,000. He was almost 30. Um, He wasn't making any money. And uh, what really hit me was like, he was like, you know, I've been fired from five or six jobs in my life. And he kind of talked and walked through everything that happened, how he got fired from those jobs. And, um, you know, after that, he's like, yeah, you know, and it's, it kind of sounds lame, but it was just like that typical guidance counselor, like, yeah, you know, just kind of put your, you know, put your nose down and just kind of grind it out and you'll get there and don't get, don't be disheartened. And, you know, not like he was like, one day you'll be on the uh, radio and you'll make a kajillion dollars like I, I did, but just kind of like, Hey, just keep persevering because you never know what'll happen. And when you think you're down, like, you know, how he got fired and things like that. And, you know, from that day on, I could I could swear, like, I think the next couple of days I got a couple hits and then I wound up actually getting a pretty good job. Um, and uh, that was a show. It really struck me. It was like almost like he was just kind of talking to me one on one. And I'll never I'll never forget that. And that was that was a great thing. But I also remember the the 92 stuff with Bill Clinton, because that's how I was kind of a, a rush baby with my my parents would listen to rush. And it was like uh, the underground, uh, the underground radio uh, getting the signal when Clinton took over because the whole country was going to go. And now you look at Bill Clinton, it's like people would kill to have Bill Clinton back. Cause he's like a, a he'd be conservative at this rate, but yeah, that's my, that's my rush story. I, I wanted to say quite frankly, and I texted this to you guys, but it was really uh, who explained conservatism to me was uh, Reagan and then rush. Reagan started it for me and then rush took the mantle and I actually heard a story where Reagan actually wrote a letter to Rush saying I'm retired now you're taking the mantle of explaining the conservative uh, movement and our values to the country and uh, that was spoken by Michael Reagan and that was my experience um, I've basically ever since Reagan have been conservative but Rush took that and could distill it and uh, distill it to millions of people to explain why uh, we were, uh, our values were the way we, that they are. 
the Republican Party, the conservative movement is built on principles and policies where the Democrats, they're um, built on uh, interest groups and the like. So the two parties are completely differently uh, uh, built upon and uh, the Republican Party uh, being built on principles, he could really expunge on that and tell you what, uh, why we believe what we believe. And I always thought he was a great communicator. That was Reagan's moniker, but uh, Rush took that after um, 88 and 92 and uh, ran with it for, uh, gave it to millions of people. Neil, Dave, any thoughts? Sure. You want to go first now? No? Okay. Well, I, I guess there's, there's Rush the Broadcaster and there's Rush the, the, the political figure. As a political figure, I think the politics kind of got beyond him a little bit toward the end. And... Not to the extent that he, he, was, he was smart enough to, to kind of transition from Reagan to Trump. But I think a lot of this conservatism, conservatism, I don't know, I, I, the, the cynical kind of retort when people say conservative values and they talk about conservative figures is what did they conserve? When you look around, I mean, they didn't conserve much, most of them. I'm, I'm not blaming Rush. I'm not blaming any of these people. Well, some I'll blame, but I think to a large extent, conservatism, conservatism, excuse me, has been a grift in this country. And it's been pretty, I mean, you look at the Lincoln Project. I mean, how much of that kind of thing has been going on? I mean, I don't think it's been limited to that. I think there's been a lot of kind of closeted, gay, pederasty kind of thing behind the scenes of people are donating money. And I remember Ross Dowdut wrote a post about, uh, how he went skinny dipping with Bill Buckley off of Bill Buckley's yacht once. And I didn't think too much of it at the time. I'm like, it's a little weird, but then you think about the whole John Weaver stuff and you're like, well, Jesus Christ, how, you know, how, how widespread is this kind of thing? So back to Rush though, that that's the political side of it. I think a lot of what he said was good politically. I think there's a lot of naivete with some Republicans where they think about principles and they don't think about, people you know that people are essentially tribal and there, there's a parallel between what republicans say we believe in principles and the people who say america is an idea and it doesn't really work that way because you open the doors to all kinds of people you assume they're going to take your ideas and then you end up with ilhan omar lecturing you about you know what's the right thing to do as an american so maybe this isn't the time we get into that but as far as a broadcaster I think he really, he really affected people. I was at my mother's earlier this week, helping her with the, the snow and that kind of thing. And she said something to me. She said, I'm not ready to let go of him yet. And we were listening to, um, Mark Stein was on, you know, hosting. This is a couple of days after Russell passed away. And he was taking calls from different callers. And one guy called in and he talked about how he would go most days of the week in the last couple of years of his father's life. And he would bring him lunch and he would have lunch with him. And his father had some kind of debilitating illness. And he was unhappy most of the time, obviously, because of that. But when Rush was on, 
his father was happy and he would laugh every day. And, and that was a connection he had with Rush. And I mean, multiply that by millions. I think a lot of people felt that way. And I think there's a similarity there. I know my mother mentioned to me, she has a friend who has some kind of degenerative illness. And obviously that, that affects your... Yeah, well, I don't know the well, but anyway, um, the point was she was always watch, she would always watch a Trump rally and she'd always feel good after a Trump rally. And people don't really, I think people who are opponents to them don't acknowledge that, that these, it's, it's a very personal connection they have with a lot of people and a lot of people love them. And I think that's rare. I don't know if people feel the same way about Hannity, for example, but people did feel that way about Rush. And I think he earned that. I think that's well put and i think uh right there we'll we'll wrap it up i i know uh um you know we've talked about this before but neil is kind of a neophyte and i don't know not to speak for you neil but i don't know if neil has any uh rush stories or was you know i i think no, I, do, I don't i will say this like we talked about uh dr carson earlier and I, and I said, uh, same thing with Rush. Like, I don't know these people, but I couldn't hold a candle to these people, uh, you know, as individuals. Like, these guys did incredible things. And, they, and they've and they spoken to people and they've affected people. And um, who the fuck am I to judge them? Who, who are reporters to judge them? You know, these guys. You know, I have one more thing to say about Rush, if, if you guys don't mind. Yeah, please, 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 absolutely. Be, because I saw, I saw an obituary for him on... Um, I don't know if you guys look at uns at all on, on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. I well, those. I mostly look at Steve Taylor there and I look at Anatoly Carlin, but as you guys know, there's some pretty far out stuff there too. I mean, people think they're far out, but much further out. And there was one guy who was kind of trashing rush to an extent, talking about him being a, a drug addict and a glutton and all this. And I don't think rush gets enough credit for, for beating that. I mean, he, he was never, he lost a lot of weight I and mean, he was in his last few years of his life. And it wasn't even before the cancer. You can't credit cancer for that. I mean, the guy beat his, his gluttony. He, he beat his drug addiction. I mean, he did get drug addiction, pain pills, I think from an injury, but he, he acknowledged it. He went right, to rehab. Right. You're absolutely right. So he had something to do with what we were talking about before too. You're absolutely right. I forgot. Yeah. But you know what? He, 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 he went on, he went on the radio and he said, look, I have a problem. And I'm going to go to rehab for a month and I'll see you guys later. And he did. And he came back and he never relapsed. And also, I mean, he went deaf and he remained like the number one guy in radio for yeah, like co- the, the cochlear implants. You'd always talk he, about those. He got the implants, but even with the implants, I remember reading a, a, an article about him by Zev Chaffetz in the New York times, like maybe 12 years ago or something. And they were at a restaurant, like one of Rush's favorite restaurants. And the waiter said something and rush. This is after the cochlear implants. He, he, he he just would kind of nod and smile. Most of the time he couldn't understand what people were saying. And on the radio, he had someone like a stenographer typing up people's comments. We could read them. So this is a guy who beat drug addiction and he beat a disability and he became the most successful person in this field. And if he weren't, you know, uh, on the right, I guess, um, he would be recognized for that. There'd be like biopics about this guy. Oh, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's an understatement. If he was a left, if he did what he did and was a left winger, They'd be talking about tearing down Robert E. Lee statues and putting his statue up. I mean, you get a record deal. You get a record deal. <laughs> yeah, he did the opposite of Morgan Wallen, who yeah. lost a yeah. record deal. Well, yeah. honestly, and everyone <laughs> kind of knows this, but I mean, he was the f- very first conservative outlet. There was no other conservative outlet before he started. Um, well, there was lo- there was local. There was local. And, local and 
and not to and not to kind of not to be negative, but you know, Rush talked about the power of conservatism and, and all this and free markets, blah blah blah. But the downside of it is he he also his success also represented something of the winner take all economy because before Rush empowered, you know, with the syndication, it used to be you had your local like in New York we had our we had Bob, local Bob Grant, a guy, right? Bob Grant was before Rush. And he, he, but every city had something like that, or maybe not exactly, but there were local um, radio personalities, and you had like hundreds of them. And then after Rush, you had maybe a relative handful because syndication made it a winner take all thing where you, you know, you were successful nationally or you weren't successful at all. So Rush isn't to blame for that, but I think that's an economic phenomenon that maybe he wasn't as sensitive to. It's not like you, you can go and start your own, be your own rush. Uh, it's just not happening. Yeah good, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think we'll end it right there. Um, what, a, what a great uh, conversation. Gary, we, we didn't even talk any sports tonight. No, we no did. The beginning. It. You missed it. What, what did we talk about? We talked about blackhead coaches in the NFL. Bar, okay, well, not current sports, though. Okay, but that's um, but I think uh, I think this is great, Dave. Now that we know you're uh, quote unquote a local guy, and if you're willing to come on again, I think, hired uh, Dave. You're hired. You're, you're <laughs> hired. Dave's hired. All right, He's you guys pay very well. He's in here. You get um, your check in the mail. Give us the last four digits of your social on. Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll send in the chat. <laughs> and all right, thanks for having me on, guys. It was great. No, we really appreciate you taking time out and 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 talking with us again. I, I just want to reiterate, I um, I really I really liked a lot of what you were uh, on your on your feed. I I think I came into contact with you a lot with um, you know, two CB and um, uh, a lot of Steve Saylor stuff. I think boy, we, we miss City Brewerica, don't we? Yeah, we sure do. Twitter's um, just not the same without him. Hope he comes back in some other form. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, that, yeah, that's an understatement. And, uh, I know, I think I, I, what I really like about your tweets, um, and, and, and things that you bring up is the questions you ask, uh, you know, you've got a great sense of humor too. And that's, and that was something it's, it's nice. I I've reached out to other people before, and it was nice that you could come down and hang out with us little people and have a great conversation with us. So we appreciate that, Dave. And, uh, again, we'd love, we, we definitely would love to have you on if you'll have us and sure. Thanks for having and, uh, me. Yeah, absolutely. We'll do maybe as we get into the next, uh, I guess, baseball's coming up. So uh, I know the guys are chomping at the bit to talk some baseball and then I'll just uh, poo poo it because of you, you didn't hear my last spiel on sports. So <laughs> but that being okay. that being said, uh, as always, uh, thanks for listening to review the news where we make the news make sense to you. Um, you can find us uh, now. We're on anchor.fm. Uh, so please uh, tune into us. Uh, uh, review the news or review news 1000 at anchor.fm. Uh, you can find Dave at D Pinson on Twitter. Check out his uh, thread line. Always, always great stuff. Great content on there. You can find us on Twitter um, as well, which is at uh, review news 1000. Uh, and uh, we're on parlor as well at review news 1000. And uh, I think that's it. Uh, gentlemen, uh, have a great night. You too. Thanks. Cheers. Episode 22 in the books. In the books.